In this episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense, I talk with Jamie Warham. Now, for those of you that might remember, Jamie was in the Valentine's Day special, episode 17. I highly recommend you listen to that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Uh, it's really great, and we tell a lot of funny stories about Jamie, and he takes it with good old British stoicism, which I'm sure would do his ancestors proud. But Jamie's a great guy, and uh, he's an old shipmate of mine, and as you can probably tell when you listen to this interview, we are very comfortable in the presence of each other. Yeah, he's one of my closest shipmates, and this despite the fact that we come from different backgrounds, though that said, as you will see, nobody has Jamie's background. It's truly unique. Uh, but that aside, we have different beliefs, different philosophies in life. We challenge each other all the time, and yet we have an incredible bond and friendship that I hope comes across in this interview. And it's something that can really only be born of having spent six weeks together on a Viking ship journey from Dublin, Ireland to Denmark. There's a few things in the episode that you'll actually hear us say like, oh, maybe we should leave this out. But I honestly think there's too much censorship in the world in this current era as it is. So uh, we left various things in there. So it's a pretty honest interview. And the main theme of the whole interview, which we say over and over again, is folks, do your own research. I know nobody wants to hear that. But uh, hopefully this interview will be a good stepping off point to confirm whatever we say or to correct us where it's needed. I'm totally open to that as well. I hope you enjoy the interview. Without further ado, here's my old Viking shipmate, Jamie Warham. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. I am here with the promised origin story of Jamie, Jamie Warham. Uh, Jamie's old shipmate of mine from the Viking ships, but his story dates back to far, far before that. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Thanks for, for talking with me, for being here, for staying at my place for a few weeks. Um, You're very welcome. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to stay here. Thank yeah. you for, for having us. I'm glad you got to go flying. You yeah, got to fly yeah. today. I had a great flight today. Saw a, a higher class submarine, which was quite majestic watching that cruising out, presumably going out to sea somewhere. Uh, I was amazed they let us get as close to it as they did. But uh, yeah. Yeah, they don't let you get close to them from the water. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, mm. we went for a flight today and it was very nice. Got to see a lot of the island and local landscape and. Uh, see how they do things a little bit differently in America. Really great guy uh, took us up, old uh, retired chap, doing it mostly for fun really as a hobby. But he was really good, really good teacher. Awesome. And and you're doing, and you do flight instruction as well, or you plan to, right? No, 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 not yet. So uh, I've got the prerequisites, going to do my instructor course, and hopefully I'm going to do that when I get back to England. I'm just waiting for one of my instructors to get their qualification to teach me my course otherwise i've got to go and do it somewhere else in the country and find accommodation and stuff like that okay well can you tell me so prior prior to this phase of your life um i mean well let's go back to the beginning so mm -hmm. you've had one of the most unconventional upbringings of all time i believe can tell us about it to start off with i was born in a tub of water on my parents living room floor so i never had to learn how to swim which was always very useful. Although it did take me a while to learn how to swim on the surface. So as a baby, I would swim underwater, then come up for air, and then swim underwater a bit more. As um, a baby? Yeah. Like pre, like younger than one years old? Yes. Yeah, so my mum my took me to the swimming pool, I think, when I was less than a week old for the first time. Took me swimming. Um, 
So yeah, I never never had to learn how to swim. Did did you ever get an ear infection? Nope. Really? Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, at least not that I was ever told about. <laughs> okay. But uh, not that I remember. I always loved water and swimming and was always very happy to be there. But um, yeah, it took me a while to learn to swim on the surface. I remember vaguely doing a race in primary school. So I must have been about four, maybe five. And uh, I didn't really know what was going on. So I jumped in the water and all the other kids were way ahead of me. And I went underwater, swam a bit, came up and they're a bit closer. Went underwater, swam a bit. And then I was in the middle of them, went underwater again. And then, I, then I'd won the race. But I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> Apparently, I had a, a very strange swimming stroke, which which I lost as I got older. It was kind of like a bicycle, mm-hmm. um, and I think they've they've looked at apes or something, and they've got a similar swimming stroke. But it was something that sort of came naturally to me, and I then forgot about as I got older. And I never learned breaststroke properly. I always used to use my arms and legs at the same time, huh. which is fine underwater. But if you try and do that on the surface, you just sink. Yeah. But I never swam on the surface. So it wasn't really an issue. Interesting. <laughs> but um, yeah, so lived lived at home in in Cornwall for uh, until I was about seven. So my parents started building their their big boat probably when I was about two, and took them about five years to build. And then when I was seven, we set off on a big trip, uh, and we went all over the place. Really, we started off in Europe and then across the Atlantic and Panama Canal, Pacific, Indian Ocean. Um, so I probably spent about maybe two thirds of my time on the boat, maybe a bit more, and then the rest of it back in Cornwall. So I missed a lot of school, like whole years at a time. And my parents tried to homeschool me, but I just I wasn't interested in learning anything. So I didn't didn't really learn that much from homeschooling. But I didn't really learn much in school either. I think most of my learning has come from reading books and watching instructional videos on YouTube post post education. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stories I could tell from, from that time period. I don't know what you want me to talk about. but There's a lot I want to talk about. I'm sure there's a lot people would be interested in. Uh, so, first of all, you said you said you had really no formal education. Not no, really. Not no. really. Okay. So, it, well, here's the question. Can, can you, how well do you write? I mean, obviously you read well. You got read to a lot. So, reading I never had a problem with. I was, um, I picked that up, I think, before I even started school. Like, like, are there any places you feel like maybe maybe you're lacking, or it's hard, more difficult because you didn't get? That well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't schooling. know because I don't know. You don't know what you don't know, do you? That's a good point. Um, <laughs> I think my maths could could probably be better. I mean, it's certainly enough to get by day to day, and probably as much as most people have. But I would like that to be a bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what the gaps in my knowledge are. Interesting. Yeah, and some of it too is very like. I mean, everybody has different skills. Right. Yeah. So for me, writing is—I I don't even think about it. And it, what, what I always me. hated writing um, as a child, and I tolerate it as an adult. But <laughs> it's not something that I enjoy, and I never did enjoy it. My handwriting is fairly bad, and my spelling is awful. I was diagnosed with dyspraxia when I was sixteen, I think. Okay. Um, and they said when I was sixteen that I had the spelling age of a nine and a half year old, and that also sort of did me, a, in a way, a double disservice because having that meant that I got extra time in exams. But having extra time in exams meant that I took the exam in a separate room, which meant that I could finish the exam as soon as I was done. And, you know, I wasn't stupid. It was sunny outside. Would I want to be in the exam room doing an exam or I want to be outside playing? It was no brainer. So I rushed through my exams as fast as possible, used less than the extra time, you know, less than the official time provided 
and just left as soon as possible. <laughs> so, yeah, I got I got reasonable grades for my GCSEs, which I guess that's the equivalent of I don't know halfway th- halfway through your high school or something. Those, those are the exams you take when you're fifteen, sixteen. Well, I got reasonably good grades for that somehow, but then when I went to college, which is kind of like your high school, mm-hmm. um, I then so I never really had friends before because I was always on a boat, apart from the odd kid that I met on another boat out at sea. Um, didn't really have friends but then as soon as I went to college I then suddenly made loads and loads of friends and it was a whole new aspect of life that I hadn't experienced and I think college is a little bit different in England you're basically allowed to do whatever you like so if you skip classes it's not you don't get punished for it or anything like that mm. so I skipped most of my classes but I was having a whole different education in how to talk to people how to have friends how to socially interact with people and I learned a huge amount um, doing that and made some friends that I still have today very good friends but I got three ungraded, which is so bad, we won't even give you a mark <laughs> for my first year of college. And then my second year of college, I dropped one subject, retook the other two, and I ended up with like a D and an E, so still really low. And I haven't used any qualifications I've learned during schooling in any of my professional life whatsoever. So I don't really see the point in any of it. <laughs> so tell us more about your, your upbringing as a child. Like... like what um so it sounds like you didn't it, it sounds like you didn't have any other kids with you on the boat is that is that right was it you and a bunch of adults or? yeah it was basically me and a bunch of adults so it was myself uh, my parents um and extended family and then usually there'd be like one or two other crew members who could be sort of anybody from anywhere that would sort of join us and leave us as we went along because reasonably large boat needed a reasonable amount of crew to for it but there was yeah, it was my mother my father and my grandmother uh who wasn't actually my grandmother but that's a, a long story but she fulfilled the role of grandmother in my life and that was sort of the the core but we would you know ocean crossings and stuff you don't see anybody else for sort of months at a time and then when you're island hopping again you don't i mean you interact with the locals a lot but you're only there for a day or two and i, I remember one time on some islands my parents would just sort of send me off with the locals or whatever in a canoe or something like that i remember one time ending up on a beach and like a whole all the kids from whatever tribe that island was i was teaching them noughts and crosses mm-hmm. which i think you called tic-tac-toe in america yeah yep. um and we were just running down the beach and finding a new bit of canvas with a stick and having another game of tic-tac-toe <laughs> pretty fun but that's not that's not long-lasting friendships that's a you know and the next day we sailed off to another island or whatever yeah i remember uh running naked through the jungle with a machete that was as big as i was at one point i had great fun doing that and then leaping into into river pools and stuff like that and swimming and playing pirates <laughs> my parents were never never shy of letting me play with knives <laughs> Wow, and that was that, that was you playing by yourself with yes, with yeah, playing by pirate by yourself yeah. and pretend. I played by myself a lot. Okay, wow, interesting. Um, did did your parents have a goal in mind with these trips, or because you said like you show up to a port for just a couple of days and then move on? Was there like a really set time schedule, or was there an ultimate like we need to get to this place by this time for some reason? So so it varied. I mean, the whole trip took place between I think it was probably like seven and. 13 something like that so it was a seven year trip um initially it was sea trials for the boat because it was a new design prototype design so it was sort of sea trials around you know going across the channel to france and 
and down into the Mediterranean, Balearic Islands and, and the such like. And then I think, well, my parents were trying to follow some of the um, previous voyages that they'd done. So they went to visit very old friends in uh, Ribadeo in Spain to start off with. Um, Pepe, who's a very interesting man. He, uh, uh, so he was, came from a rich family in Galicia. I, I don't know the full story, but I know he'd had to take part in, um, he had to do stuff for Franco. And I think he had to drive the, the trucks with the political prisoners to be executed. And I think that had left a lot of emotional scars with him but he was a, a lovely chap you know obviously he was forced to do that it wasn't wasn't by choice or whatever and his and his wife so that was, that was where we sort of started the trip and they gave me a big red ferrari a toy ferrari yes folks, yeah, no, folks, no, folks ferrari. listening jamie's hands went out about a foot and a half so <laughs> well maybe it was a bit less i, I was a, a kid it a was, foot yeah, yeah was, so big but, red um, ferrari that was, that was very, very exciting for me as a seven-year-old boy and i didn't really get the all the rest of the backstory until I was much older, but uh, and they lived in this gorgeous old ancient Spanish like manor house thing. Probably been in the family for generations or whatever. And uh, yeah, then we headed into the Balearic Islands, then down to the Canaries. Spent quite a lot of time in the Canaries. We chartered the boat first to a group of divers, uh, and I managed to go for my first dive with them in I think the Madeira Islands. And then later on, I ended up teaching diving, but I really loved it at that point. I didn't get to do it again for another. 10 years or whatever and then sometime while we were in the Canary Islands there was this gathering of double canoes being organised in Tahiti so the idea was to get all the replica double canoes now a double canoe that what's the difference between a double canoe and a catamaran so I guess a catamaran would be probably what you would think of when you would imagine a catamaran so like a Beneteau, some hideous thing that's made out of white plastic and doesn't sail very well and has got two massive engines in it and an air conditioning unit. Um, and a double canoe, I suppose, in its purest form would be uh, like a replica Polynesian or, you know, Polynesian vessel or, or whatever. whatever. Um, now, my parents' boat was, I guess, I, w- I won't say a cross between the two. I mean, they're their own thing. You can, I don't want to plug the business or whatever. You can look them up online. Um, but they don't look like modern catamarans and they don't really look like um, replicas either. But the whole shape is essentially a, a replica. So the these boats, how would how would people find? Because it's the Warham design. What, what's what's the name of? Is it Warham catamaran? Is it? Oh, well, if we are canoe? if we are plugging the business, then it's of course War, we are. It's Warham dot com. <laughs> That's Whiskey Hotel Alpha Romeo Romeo Alpha Mike dot com. Um, and if you want to go and build one, you can buy yourself some plans, get yourself some plywood and epoxy, and build one in your garden shed. Very cheap way to get a boat, and you can go off sailing around the world. My understanding always of catamarans was that they're very bad. They don't sail to weather. Like, like they're not they're not very maneuverable. They're faster. They're roomier. But those are your Shut two up, yeah, big um... advantages. Well, and I'm just I'm just letting you know, look. You're gonna have hopefully there'll be millions of people listening to this podcast someday who have heard the very same thing I did. Um, now I'm, but I'm open. I'm open to hearing. Okay, so what you, um, what you gotta say because been... it sounded fascinating, and I I love history, and I believe yeah. that people through trial and error learn a hell of a lot more than. So over, my father's been, thousands of years been fighting that rubbish all his life. Well, here we go. So, okay, this is what he's told me. Um, so take it with a pinch of salt or whatever. But uh, Polynesians had very exceptionally seaworthy ships. And Captain Cook said to himself in his logs and what have you, 
later on, when the missionaries came um, to convert convert the people and what have you, they saw that a, a large part of the religion was the boats because their whole way of life is revolving around the boats. And you would end up, they would sail, they would do these voyages from island to island and a bunch of people would show up on a boat and then all the local people would show up and they'd all have sex and orgies on the beach and what have you. And it's all centred around these boats. So one of the aspects that the missionaries decided they need to shut down was the boats. So they made out this thing that they're unseaworthy, they're unsafe, it's a death trap going out in them. You guys have got to stop using them, get rid of them, destroy your boats, etc., etc. And then I think that's where this uh, myth came from that Cashmans can't sail to windward and aren't seaworthy and, and what have you. So that was the pervasive, even though the early explorers like Cook and what have you had said they're fantastic boats. Do you know how they did it? Was it just through... Because invariably a boat's going to sink once in a while, European sure. or otherwise. Yeah. Um, was it, Did they just use superstition for that? Like, oh, see that boat sank, therefore... How did the, how did the missionaries do it? I have no idea. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and like I said, go do your own research. This is just what I know in my head, um, so don't just take my word for it. All right. Um, Nobody wants to hear that, Jamie. We all want to be told what to think, so... <laughs> very progressive. <laughs> Folks, you're, you're talking to a very progressive human here. Like, it sucks, but yeah, do your own research. Exactly. But can you tell us then, so what got your dad thinking okay. otherwise? So, well, you really should be interviewing him if he hadn't passed away a couple of months ago. Um, so my dad was, well, he started out as a, a mountain climber so in, in the north of England. And then, so the story goes, that he tells me he was climbing up a mountain one day and he was looking out to sea and he thought, nope, I want to go there instead. So he lived in Manchester he had a. He grew up in Manchester during the war. He was just young enough to not be conscripted into the army. I think he was sixteen when the war ended. Um, but he did remember Manchester being bombed and and what have you. Uh, but he went to the Manchester Library and he did as much research as he could on sailing and boats. And somewhere tucked away in a corner of this library were some very old books on Polynesian boats. And he thought, well, that all sounds good I want to do that um, and there was this sort of these were very old books they're like Cook's logs and stuff like that and um, so these are primary source documents yeah like yeah the first yeah recording of, yes from outsiders um, looking in. and I think well there was something else where you'd have to ask my mother about it she would she she knows my father's backstory better than I do but anyway he decided you know and then he saw that you know lots of people said they didn't work and stuff and he thought well I'm gonna prove them wrong uh, I think especially so he he very much admired the the um, uh, the Contiki expedition, but the Contiki expedition was trying to prove a drift voyage, the, mm -hmm. and that's how that the Polynesian islands were were colonised through drift voyage. And my father thought that they had seaworthy boats, so that I mean, well, that might have been one way they were colonised, but certainly not the not the only way. So he built his first catamaran and set sail from Falmouth to. Caribbean and made the voyage successfully. Everybody said he was going to die, but he didn't. If you go on YouTube, whatever, you can find Pathé newsreels from the time where they took a little shot of it and stuff. And then that wasn't the first crossing of the Atlantic by Catamaran, but it was one of the first. But then while he was there, he then built a second much better boat. So the first one he built had all sorts of... He basically made it like um, an inshore 
double canoe. So it had a round, it didn't have a rounded bottom. It had a sort of square bottom because it was made of plywood, but near enough a rounded bottom. Where did he get the plans for that? Oh, he designed it. Just designed it from like from, from reading his, and th- imagining? I think like, pretty much from his head. And wow. reading and imagining, yeah. So, so he was doing actual trial and error. So, so yeah, yeah. and no Polynesian influence directly. Well, apart from the books that he'd read in the Manchester Library. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it was 20, 21 foot long. Did he make any like mock-ups or anything to, to kind of test it? And... I don't think so. Oh, wow. No, he, just, All right. he just went for it. They had all sorts of problems with the rudders, but they fixed that later. Anyway, so having done that, so he'd read the books and most of them had described sort of canoe shaped, so a sort of a U-shaped mm-hmm. cross-section of the hull. And those are designed for inshore traveling and lots of paddling. So they don't sail great in heavy seas and so on. And then his, so in the Caribbean, he then built a second boat with a V-shaped hull, which is what they used for ocean voyaging. And then sail, did the first, North Atlantic crossing by Catamaran back home to England and again didn't die despite whatever it was and when you say a v-shaped hull so in cross-section the entire hull or or is it because like I mean I'm I'm picturing some of the boats I've sailed on where you have like more of a u-shape like like they call it a bluff bow where the bow is is pretty rounded and you kind of pound into the waves versus like a more modern boat you're going to just slice through no no so a sharp sharp bow so this is very difficult to explain on the radio. Yeah, sorry, folks. <laughs> um, maybe Owen can put up some pictures of plans or something. But uh, if you imagine looking from bow to stern, the whole hull shape is a V. The entire ta- hull. The entire okay. hull. And it tapers at the bow and the stern. So okay. you end up with a with a slicing okay. bow and stern. Got it. And that's very different from a modern catamaran. Well, not my parents' boats. No, <laughs> I understand. But, but I'm saying like the... The you mean all the plastic crap? Plastic, yeah, fantastic. I, yeah, modern. they they okay. So they just they make the U-shaped holes because you can uh, fit more volume inside them, so they're more comfortable. Mm-hmm. With a V-shaped hole, it's less comfortable because you've got less space. Sails well, but you've got less space. Um, so they make them U-shaped holes, and then they put a massive deck pod in the middle of it, and they bolt it all together so nothing can move, and so you're nice and warm inside, and you can walk from your standing headroom in your enormous deck pod to your standing headroom in your enormous holes and then to make the whole huge heavy thing go with all its engines they put a huge rig on it which puts the center of gravity way up which means it wants to capsize so they put two huge keels on the bottom of it with a bunch of lead underneath it's not great design okay um tell us what you really think <laughs> so no so um tell us about your experiences sailing on these these vessels, these designs that you've sailed on, like like how do how do they sail? Why like how how close can you point to okay, the wind? So, how maneuverable is the vessel? How safe is it? So you, I think I think you said um, well. First off, you were asked me to describe why we're sailing around the world. I never finished that story. Ah. But um, also earlier on, you said uh, that you had an impression that they didn't sail to windward very well. And what was the what were the other things? No, 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 I'm just telling you what I've been told. Um, I've only sailed on one catamaran. Mm-hmm. It was a modern, uh, I think. Seven I've, heard, years, I've heard the story. It sounds horrific. Yeah, seventy or seventy-five foot uh, uh, modern luxury catamaran. It was cool. It was a really cool boat. I'm not gonna lie, I've never had a boat where I could single-handedly just press buttons and make the sails go in and out. And what that, happened? What happens when the electrics? That fail? was amazing. Well, there is a manual option. It's going to involve a big winch and a lot of cranking. But uh, there was that was my, one of my first questions. Is like, okay, this is lovely, but when yeah. it, when it fails, what do we what do we got? And so there were backups for that. 
but it was just it was a different way of traveling i had the best boss you could ever imagine for that culture like like a, a friend and a boss at the same time it was it's really hard to describe uh, but not not necessarily my style not the way you know necessarily i would want to do it but i can see why people would want the i mean we had people coming on board that were coming from mega yachts and they and they they would go on our or this catamaran um, or, or visit or whatever and they'd be like wow like you guys have more room in the back of your catamaran in in the sun deck than we have on our 135 foot mega yacht <laughs> so you know but obvious but but that's that's a different style of traveling that's a different way of being i mean I, I get it like most people don't want to be on a tall ship where you're exposed out in the or a viking ship where you're exposed 24 7 that's best 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 trip <laughs> it ship so is awesome. best trip. we'll get to it we'll get to it but but you know what i mean like like i i don't i don't um i don't judge people based off of of that you know if they want the luxury that's great i totally get it maybe not necessarily my thing you know or my way of traveling but but boy, I love it when it's there. Oh, sure, luxury is always nice. Yeah, I mean, but but like, it's not sailing though. It's you know, it's something else. Yeah, but my wife and I like we talked about it, and was you know what? We want hand pumps for everything. Like we want we want as little electricity on the boat as humanly possible in this day and age. Because, um, and and you know, she's an expert at fixing those things. But it's like, yeah, they just systems fail, things go wrong, and they're harder to replace and they're harder to jury rig period. So that's our take on it. But what I want to know is how actually do the real, the real canoe, double canoes sail in real life? Um, I can't speak to the sort of more, you know, traditional catchmans that you would imagine when you, when you think, when you picture a catchman in your head, but speaking about my parents' boats in terms of windward performance on Gaia, on a good day, we could get 45 degrees to the wind. Um, if we were really sort of tuning the sails and stuff. I'm sorry. So Gaia is the name of the boat. Uh, correct, yes. And you said 45 degrees. Yes. To the wind. Yes. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, but that's if you're really tuning everything and, you know, really doing it right. But sailing more relaxed, probably more like 50 degrees. That's still pretty good. Um, and leeway, so long as you're going reasonably reasonably fast, above, say, four knots, leeway is negligible. Uh, but when you're going slower, then leeway becomes a bit more of an issue. Okay. Tacking is certainly a lot harder than on a monohull, uh, but once you've got the technique down, it's it's not particularly difficult. Um, my mum would definitely be the person to interview to give you an in-depth description of how to tack the ship. Now, is that where you basically have to club haul, where you come up into the wind and you're going backwards and you have to shift your helm and back everything and then head off the other Not, not if you do it right. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. All right, I need to interview your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But um, yeah, you you back the jib, coming through the tack, and then you let off the mizzen and then the main. Now, so, uh, so that would help to let people know that your catamaran has two masts. Yeah, so she's a schooner. Yeah, uh, schooner rigged. Schooner rigged, and the mizzen and the main are are identical. You can actually swap the sails around, but the mizzen has a boom, and the main does not. Did the Polynesian vessel were were they more Latin rigged? So okay. Uh, I think I suspect a lot of this has to do with the performance of the rig because I've also sailed on one of my parents' later designs, which was a proper replica. The only difference was the construction materials, but the whole shape was taken directly from a 200-year-old vessel that we found on one of the islands. So, like it was, it was a copy, and then the rig was also a copy. So traditionally, they used crab claw rigs. Crab, crab claw. claw, yeah. Okay. And these are 
not as efficient at all. I, de- I can't tell you exactly what degrees off the wind we got on that boat, but I would say more like 60, maybe 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not as good. Um, so a lot of that performance comes down to the rig, which my mother designed. And so the rig, it's she called it a Warren wingsail rig. It's kind of a Dutch gaff rig, but instead of having sort of hoops and all this tackle and stuff to fix it to the mast, it wraps around the mast, and then there's uh, some webbing straps and a zipper that holds it on. But it, you mean the sail the itself sail. wraps around the mast? Wraps around that. So completely smooth masts. Sail wraps around the mast. The, then the halyards go up uh, in the little space behind the mast uh, where the sail wraps around. So everything's completely aerodynamic. So you get a really smooth laminar flow around the sail. There's there's no there's nothing to disrupt the airflow. Um, and then because it's a schooner rig, uh, that means the center of effort is much lower. So risk of capsizing is much lower. What they do on a lot of the modern catamarans is they put these big Bermuda rigs on for some reason, but they only have one mast. So that means they've got a giant sail and the center of effort is much higher. So more likely to capsize. And then they put on an even bigger mast because they made the boat so heavy. I should stop bashing modern cashmans. Anyway, um, the rig is very efficient. They, there was actually, there was I can't remember which design it was, but another one of my parents' designs that two people had made ones, two plans, so identical. One of them had put on the designed rig with the two mast schooner rig and the other one put on a modern Bermuda one and the one that my mum had designed outsailed the other one. Um, so it works better. In terms of seaworthiness, I would. There is no other vessel that I'd rather be on in a storm than Gaia, by a fairly large margin. So she's got seven watertight compartments in each hull, which makes it a bit of a bugger if you're sort of in port in rainy weather, because it means you've got to to get to one comes to the next, you've got to get out. But it does mean that if you hit a container or anything like that you've got to puncture a lot of compartments to, and, they, and these are fully watertight compartments then it's not like the titanic where it only goes up to the bottom there's no hatches in them nothing like that completely watertight uh and the whole hull is sheathed in epoxy so it, it never leaks there's there's never any water in the bilge unless it's from rain and then the way that the boat is constructed is the uh holes are lashed to the beams with climbing rope and that allows it to be flexible so when you hit heavy weather rather than the whole boat being rigid and putting stress on every joint, the boat just moves. It doesn't move much, maybe by, I don't know, four inches or so, but there's a whole bunch of different points. So when you move that over the whole boat, the whole boat flexes and rides over the sea. So she doesn't get stress on any one particular point. And then the center deck, rather than having a huge deck pod in the middle of it, where the waves will slam underneath and bash into it all the time, it's just slatted planks. So a wave will come up underneath and it will just go straight through the deck, which is a little disconcerting when you're walking across the chart room to the galley and all of a sudden you're waist deep in water, but it puts no stress on the boat. Wow. So it's a wet boat, but it's a very, very safe boat. That must look pretty cool at night, um, the bioluminescence streaming through there. Yeah, yeah, very cool. We saw dolphins once with bioluminescence on. That was very beautiful. <laughs> and then, the, so these water type bulk, so you have six hatches then per side to to go into each water type bulk? One, two three four five five hatches and then the two water compartments on the end are crash compartments so they don't have exterior hatches they don't have storage in them no chain locker nothing like that uh no those are just crash compartments so they're not that big they're empty they're empty yeah okay 
So they're, I don't know, maybe three foot, three foot of the hole's length yeah. in each one. Okay. So six foot of the hole's length in total. Uh, amazing. We did crash once headfirst into the uh, dock wall in the Panama Canal, and we were very worried it might damage the boat, but other than the paintwork, it was fine. That wasn't our fault. That was the American Marine Corps' fault, but that's another story. Let's hear the story. I, okay, so... I'm, I'm going to tell a story after you're done to make up for the American Marines, but let's hear your story. Okay, sure. Um, well, you, well, first off, you were saying, how, what, how, what was this voyage all about? So we're in the Canary Islands, and we just finished this charter with this El Gincho group. I can't remember what they were doing. I was very young at the time. But we had 20 of... 20 of us on the boat so it was pretty cramped 63 foot boat uh, not compared to the Viking ship but still pretty cramped Yeah. and somehow we got this message that there was this going to be this great gathering of double canoes uh, starting off in Tahiti and it would be replicas of all various different Polynesian catamarans from all over the Pacific and they're going to meet up there for a huge great big gathering and there'll be celebrations and so on so we thought well and we were invited so we thought well we have to be part of this and it was happening real soon so we took off across the atlantic which was a beautiful voyage uh, very nice very nice weather uh, lots of sort of swimming in the ocean and we had christmas out there it was all very pleasant no storms to speak of or anything got to antigua and then we only spent a day or two there and then another i think week or two to get to the panama canal which was very disconcerting because uh, there were all these chaps with automatic shotguns sort of roaming the streets, guards and stuff. And that was that felt very strange. To, it was quite culture shocking to get into that. And the water tasted very weird, very earthy. Anyway, we went... Jamie's th- British, folks, in case you didn't know. We went so, through the... Guns. <laughs> yeah, the fully automatic shotguns. Not pump-action shotguns. Shotguns where you pull right, the trigger I'm, and they just kidding. keep we're, we're lucky enough. In America, we don't yet have people patrolling the streets with fully automatic shotguns um, in most places. Uh, so anyway, so we went through, we went up the locks. If you don't know what the Panama Canal is like, it's, I think, three or four locks up. Then there's a big lake and then three or four locks down. We went up the locks, no problem. Sailed across the lake. And then going down the locks, for some reason, the Panama, the canal authorities told us to tie up next to this American marine landing craft. So the marine landing craft would tie up to the, to the lock side or whatever. And we'd tie up to them. But bless them, the soldiers on, they might have been very good soldiers, but they were not good boat handlers. So they didn't even know how to tie a cleat. Oh, no. Like they just had no idea. And oh, no. so the first two two locks or three locks, they just fumbled it all. It was just a complete mess, but it ended up fine. Now on the third lock, so when, when they drain the lock to go down, there's a huge current come through. Yeah. And on the third one, the... Poor lad on the end of the line. He just couldn't figure out how to tie a cleat. And he's trying to hold on to this rope. And then the current comes through. It gets between the landing craft and our boat. And our boat pivots on the bow of the landing craft. And the boat started to move. It's got way now. And the tide is hitting it. He finally gets it cleated off. But like, you know, at a 45 degree angle to the bow or whatever. Oh, geez, yeah. All the water hits it. Yeah. It rips off the where it was tied on on our boat just rips that off it knocks my dad in the water and then once that is free our boat just goes straight into the dock wall so my dad's in the water everybody that was on their feet on the boat is knocked off their feet wow i just remember my dad in the water and then this poor 
American is like throwing him a life ring and, he, and he's just screaming at him you've ruined everything you've ruined it all you incompetent I can't say the rest of it <laughs> anyway so they fish him out they fish him out of the water we get things sorted out we get through the locks and we started off with a you know insurance complaints procedure or whatever and it's Panama you know there's a mountain of red tape and paperwork yeah and we're like, well, if we don't get going, we're going to miss this double canoe gathering. So we check check for damage, and see, it was fine. So, right. you know, an impact strong enough to knock everybody on deck off their feet, but it was just scratch damage to the paint. And onto con- concrete. Onto concrete, yeah. Wow. Onto, a, onto a concrete. How fast do you think you're going when you impacted? I have no idea. Roughly. It, fast enough to knock everybody off their feet. All right. All right. Fair enough. So... Probably not that fast. Probably only a knot or two. Oh, man. Everything you say, Jamie, it makes me think of like five other stories. But I'm going to f- focus on the one that I thought of before. So to, to vi- vindicate, is that the word? To, to make the Marine Corps look a little better. So I was sitting there going to my brother-in-law's, uh, my sister's wedding, and she married a Marine. So my brother-in-law, he wanted to go in his dress blues, of course, and all his Marine friends were there. And, and there's a whole bunch of stories behind all that. It was hilarious. But anyway... I'm sitting there in a car in my suit. Yeah, I have like my little wedding wedding suit. I don't know what you call it, but I'm wearing a suit. And I'm, I'm riding in the, the center seat in the back seat. And I've got four Marines in the vehicle with me, all in their dress blues. And then behind me is my brother-in-law riding one of the Marines' motorcycles. So, you know, he wanted to ride in on a motorcycle in the wedding. And he had his dress blues. But my brother-in-law is short. He is a short human. Stocky, strong, but short. And he's, the bike stalled out. So we get to a stop, like we get to a stoplight and the bike stalls out and the Marines were there and they're like, oh man, I think he stalled. Oh yeah. Oh dude. Yeah. He stalled. He stalled on the bike. And he's, you know, brother, I was trying to kickstart this thing. He's like, he's too short. That's my bike. He's not, his legs aren't long enough. He's too short. He like, he can't do it. There's no way. And so finally I just like kind of just casually, I said, well, why don't you go help him? Boom! Like this explosion. I mean, in less than a split second, like boom! They were all four of them were out there and like helping him out. And it was just like, and I was just alone in this vehicle. I was like, oh man, I wish my sailors had that kind of alacrity. Like it was incredible. They were just waiting for an order. Like they were just waiting for an order. And it was hilarious. Well, first off, maybe they were just very good bikers. Um, but second, off, in in the defense, it it might maybe it was a training vessel. Mm. They might have been under tuition. I don't know. And I'm sure they're exceptional soldiers and very brave. Well, I know that, that that is the case. All I can speak for is some of their cleat-tying ability leaves a little to be desired. Yeah, folks at home... Which I'm sure the Royal Marines, they don't have that problem. Folks at home... Go, they're born oh, good. Oh, God, yeah. You've got 100 years of tradition. I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go, go look, up, look it up on YouTube. How to cleat off a ship. It's not that difficult. More turns <laughs> equals more friction. Like, this is not complex at all. <laughs> and just... Uh, Make sure you know how to do that before you're... And just make it instinctual. Do it a hundred times. Um, so yeah, we then... we then So after that, so we took off in the middle of the night to avoid all the red tape and what have you. Um, we had a bunch of storms crossing the Pacific and then we ended up in Tahiti for this great gathering. And then... So it turned out it was basically a French government propaganda exercise to put it mildly um so the biggest boat was the tahitian one or french one and their flag was bigger than their sail their french flag was bigger than their sail (laughs) um and so there, there were a few actual proper replica boats there that were really good and sailed 
and we made good friends with them and had some good talks but the rest of them they were just sort of show pieces and then they all had a modern yacht with a big engine and a tow line and then they would hook up to the tow line and they would get towed to the next island oh and then there would be a feast and lots of eating and celebrations and talk about how great the french were and then a couple of days later they would hook up to their tow line and get towed to the next island and so on and so on and so on and after a few weeks of this so they didn't like us very much, presumably because we just sailed across two oceans to get there and they were being towed everywhere. So we got put at the children's table at every feast and so on. Um, With they being who exactly? I was very young, so I can't oh, remember okay. that well. But the impression I got was the organizers, mm. probably the French. I don't know. But I, I think there was an element of uh, racism in there as well because we were all white and we were the wrong skin color or what have you. Uh, you might have to edit that out. But um, that, there might have been an element of that in there as well. Uh, but that said, that I think there were two boats that actually did sail, and we got on great with them. That's good. The actual sailors. Um, but yeah, they were probably not white. No, 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 no. They were, I think I can't. You'd have to ask my mum. I can't remember. I think one of them came from the Cook Islands. The other one might have been Hawaii. I can't remember. So yeah, we, we figured we weren't welcome. So after a while, we decided, okay, well. We've had enough of this. We're going to leave. There was something else we'd heard about uh, in New Zealand. We're going to go to New Zealand. So the last day we were with the fleet, they all had their tow lines on. They're all being towed by their boats. And then we've got all our sail up. It's a lovely sailing day. And we sail around the whole fleet in circles. (laughs) About four or five times, which they probably really didn't like. And then sailed off to um, Fiji. And that was... Was that the bad weather? No, I think the bad weather came later. We we got to Fiji, then we sailed to New Zealand, and we just it was just storms on the nose all the way. Well, gales slash storms. It wasn't all storms, mm-hmm. but just horrible weather all the way there. And then we ended up in a in the uh, Maritime Museum in Auckland uh, as like a living exhibit, and that was huge culture shock for me because going from sort of island life to all of a sudden being in a big city, very strange. Had you never been in a big city up until that time? Uh, and to find big city, what year was this? Auckland. Well, this would have been, oh gosh, ninety late nineties. Late nineties. Okay, yeah. yeah, Auckland's pretty big by that point. Yeah, it's still vast. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. It's just it's pre Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah. to, to I mean, me, I guess the biggest city I've been in before that was probably London, but only to get an aeroplane. Okay. I mean, Truro is my home city, and you can walk across Truro in 20 minutes. Wow. And I still think Truro is a pretty big city, so... (laughs) It is true that New Zealand, I mean, like anywhere, the population is concentrated in the city, and then you get to the countryside, and there's nobody. It's great. Wow, cool. So late 90s. So, so obviously, they must... Did they have GPS by that? They had GPS. They had... So, in terms of electronics in the boat, we started out with... We had one electric light in the chart room, one electric light in the galley... There was an echo sounder and a wind speed measurement. The wind speed measurement broke pretty early on. Uh, and we had a very early GPS, one of the first. So mm-hmm. it had like two parts to it. Um, so most of the navigation was done via the GPS. And then we got the weather through Ruth, my grandmother. She had a shortwave radio. I remember yeah. crossing the Bay of Biscay and just throwing up continuously. I went through all the different types of bile, green bile, yellow bile everything and just sheltering in her cabin it was really rough in the bear biscuit and then she was like crouching down this little old lady crouching down trying to get the weather forecast on a shortwave radio 
Uh, and then she she had she never got seasick, so she was also the cook. So she would, I don't know how old she was, late sixties, early seventies. She would crawl across the deck, with like waves coming up underneath, waves coming over, crawl into the galley, open up the hatch, get down, cook a hot meal for everybody, crawl back out, and then we had these old margarine tubs with lids, and then she'd bring out a stack of them and hand them out to the to the crew. Amazing, she was very good. But yeah, that's all we had. So we had two electric lights, a GPS, speed wind speed indicator and an echo sounder uh, oh and and a log and that, that that was all the electrics we had in the boat and then everything else was uh lanterns a log Par- what, what do you mean by a log a log a log yeah a speedometer you know yeah chip lock yeah chip old log. fashioned okay but well, well, need- no no an electronic one oh electronic one. okay yeah. okay got it sorry yeah what do you I, call I'm a, them i'm a tall ship sailor man like i, I don't know like like we, what, we, what do you call the thing that gives you we use the actual chip lock like use an actual log that you held and, and went out okay and, yeah, I mean, obviously we had the, the modern yeah. electronic stuff, but when we were yeah. demonstrating how they used to do it. What so. do you call the modern electronic stuff then, if not a ship's log? Uh, we don't call it a log. It'd be a, uh, I, don't, I don't even know, gosh. I mean, now, these days it's just a digital readout. Yeah. So it just tells you your speed it was, flat yeah, out. one of them. Yeah, so um, I don't even need it. Uh, right, but, I mean, much, much later we got more electric lights and solar panels and stuff like that. But uh, for, mo- for most of the voyage, that was all the instrumentation we had uh, and then the engines we had, we had two 9.9 outboard engines, uh, which sounds ridiculous because later on I, I started teaching dinghy sailing and I'd be riding around in a, a very small like dory with a 20 house, horsepower engine on the back of it. And then this is a 63 <laughs> foot catamaran with slightly less of a power plant. <laughs> but we didn't really, we, we used the engines for going out of harbour and that was about it. Amazing. So what what was it like when... So you sail most of the way, obviously, if you have so little engine power. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm guessing also little fuel, and it's gasoline, so you mm-hmm. don't want that too yeah. much of that on board anyway. No, we just got a few jerry cans of it. Okay. So then... Enough for maybe two days. What was a normal... like? Because you were going to some very remote places, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like when you showed up to a place where there were some villagers that maybe that don't get regular people coming... What, what what would that be like? Like you show up. What's the first thing? You show up in the daytime. You show up at night. Like like how? I mean, I don't know. Well, I just want to kind of visualize what what that was like. I mean, to me, it was normal because that was just what we did. But I mean, people always recognized the boat, so they always saw the boat and went, "That's one of ours." Ah, okay. So there was always. Were they a... surprised to see people of European descent on board? I I. Did they not as care? a child, I I I never. I didn't. Race was never a thing. Mm. I never, I don't think so. So I never saw, I just saw people. I never saw like, oh, these people are different to me because I didn't know any better. I was a kid. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, And I assume they were the same way, but I don't know. I was a kid. Yeah. Um, But I do remember they were always very excited to see the boat because they could see that that was part of their sort of cultural, even though it was a bit different, you know, had a slightly different rig on it and so on. It was similar enough to their what they used to have that they would always recognize the boat man if people from central africa show up with a 74 gun ship i'm thrilled <laughs> i'd be like whoa that's awesome yeah i won't care that would be <laughs> like, pretty awesome yeah i mean like i literally yeah. don't care i'm just like that's a 74 gun ship that i want to see one of those again <laughs> all right so i get it i told you so it you. was uh so in terms of welcome, I think Fiji was probably the least welcoming, but I think that was because they'd had a lot of yachtsmen there. And there was almost this culture. They got this drug there called Carver. 
it's sort of it it's it's a, it's a root and you pound it and you drink it and it kind of numbs your mouth never really did anything to me but i only had a little bit of it as a kid and you can't really get it anywhere that isn't fiji so maybe if you drink a lot of it it does something to you i don't know but um there was i think way back when there was a ritual where if you visit somewhere you bring some of this to show that you're peaceful and so on and then that had somehow turned into because so many sort of tourists and yachtsmen visiting it became like a tribute thing and so you would turn up there and they'd be like right where's the carver got it yeah um but that was only <laughs> fiji um so that that was a little bit you know i mean it wasn't it didn't make us feel and then i remember i'm sorry i'm going to impinge on your countrymen but we, we ran into a, an american boat you say those damn yanks yeah yeah those those damn tanks the septics um so we ran into an american boat and it, it was an american man and his wife and i think we went over there for drinks or something and he's just i don't know where in america he was from i have since learned that lots of places in america are very different from each other but he was talking about yep every time i'm not going to try and do the american accent but every time i go into a harbor and the locals come, I get out my gun and I put it down next to me and then they see the gun and they know what's what and they're not going to try anything. I'm just like, what? <laughs> How do you even, you know, just smile and nod and leave the boat as fast as possible? <laughs> it's like, how do you even deal with that? But um, yeah, he had his gun and uh, he liked showing it off to people. So that, if they had a bunch of people like that, that probably didn't help either. Mm. But uh, Vanuatu was was absolutely wonderful. So Vanuatu was uh, used to be the New Hebrides when the British owned it, as we did many things. Um, and then they became Vanuatu after they left. It was all very peaceful. wasn't you know wasn't they? I think they were quite pleased. I don't know. I shouldn't speak for them, but uh, mm -hmm. the impression I got was was it was all very amicable, and that was very out of the way. Very little sort of touched by everything else it wasn't on the major sailing routes and so on and yeah the people there were incredibly just really nice just really sort of friendly and nice they're always happy to see the boat they'd invite us in to see the chief or whatever and we would sort of share food and what have you and things like that and then we would bring them on the boat and give them food and you know sort of reciprocal thing i'm sure much like it was in the old days well apart from the war and the cannibalism. But apart from that, much like it was in the old days. Yeah, I mean, and the orgies. and the, I mean, there's... Yeah, there were no... There's good and there bad. Were no, as know. far as I'm aware, there were no... Um, let's, yeah. let's not judge history too harshly here. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Reading some of the primary... Folks, do your own research. Don't take my word for it, but reading some of the primary source documents, holy moly. Like, yeah, it's... When you, when you have no... Uh, when you have no, well, sexually transmitted diseases or, or sexually transmitted infections, my God. Like, and, and of course, there's no, yep, we there's ruined, no moral. We ruined it for all of them. Yeah, there's no sin STDs. involved, like pre-Christianity. Pre like, guess mm -hmm. what? There's, there's no moral. Oh, God. Now we just delved into religion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to imagine the world. But, but you can read about, you can read about other things too. Like you read about, um, I forget the uh, one fellow. Islamic fellow is like one of our primary sources for the Viking culture. And he, he met up with, and you got to take it with a huge grain of salt because obviously he came from a, a storytelling background. And, uh, but, it, but it's amazing. The 13th Warrior, some of the scenes in that film are based directly off of his account. 
and it's phenomenal. And but you know, part of me wonders if he didn't just come across a bunch of frat boys that were peddling a bunch of women and wares, and you know that you know you go to America and you go to a frat house, and it's going to have a very different culture than say going to an Amish village, right? So you do have to be kind of careful. But at the same time, it's an incredible account. And but yeah, like you you get that he's coming from a culture that has a very strict code of conduct and morality uh, to another culture that has a very different code of conduct and reality and and just no shame about sexuality it's it was at least those those men didn't uh, it was pretty crazy and women well the pacific is a very big place and there's a lot of different cultures there and i saw it all as a child so i'm no expert um so don't take any of what i say as as gospel or whatever you fair enough the theme of this interview is do your own research folks that's, yeah definitely do your research but so well, that's how my dad ended up building boats and crossing the Atlantic. He did his own research in the Manchester Library. So amazing, incredible, um, and incredible that yeah, like he was basing it off of history, not off of a theory. Like Contiki was, we've got this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We think this is true. Yeah, that's that's different than saying, well, no, this is what was reported. Let's try and make that happen again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, like, like why why do the modern ones not do what they're supposed to do? So I like I like that. I, I always like it when people take the history for what it is, as in let's start with that mm-hmm. and then work our way around it. Versus you know, I'm not oh that show uh, MythBusters. Yeah, yeah, that show MythBusters. Like they, I mean, I, interesting show. I watched one and a half episodes. I, I get it. I get why people find it entertaining, but my God, like if they had started with history, you just wouldn't have an episode. It'd be like, oh, okay, well, well, let's figure out, you know, because the one I saw was they were doing like the archery thing, and they're like, well, could you actually split an arrow with another arrow, Robin Hood style? Let's try it. So what do they do? They make this big machine that shoots arrows, and then they go out and buy little plastic arrows with like like stubby tips, and and they're like, of course that fails. You know that doesn't work. Oh, let's try a pointed tip. Ah, real smart. Of course, that doesn't work either because you got a freaking plastic arrow. Okay, well, oh, they made them out of wood. Let's make one out of wood. So we buy a wooden arrow. Well, of course, modern wooden arrows aren't made the way you would have when you only had so a little really hatchet. So they really do it this bad? Oh, yeah, it was bad. Oh, yeah. Well, you can watch it. Folks, do your own research. Don't take my word There's for it. There's a fantastic guy on YouTube called Todd's Workshop. You should watch him for medieval stuff. He's All right. Good. Fair enough. But yeah, so in the end, they shoot a wooden arrow. Finally, they've like, they're getting close. They're getting really, really close. And they shoot the wooden arrow. It goes about halfway down the arrow, follows the grain of the wood. And goes out because it was on made on a lathe, probably, and not like mm-hmm. with a hatchet, which would have followed the grain. And so, of course, they're like myth busted. Like, there's no way this can happen. I'm like, you were so close. Like, like <laughs> literally, like ha- you were almost there. You almost constructed an arrow the way they would have done it historically. And guess what? It would have worked. So, myth busted, mythbusters. Like, I don't know. I, I saw that. and I saw part of the pirate episode. I'm like, I'm done with the show. <laughs> but I get it. I get why people find it interesting. But that show goes about it. It goes about it from a great way to make entertainment, a horrible way to go about history. Start with the history, assume it's real, assume it's accurate. You can assume it's biased. That that's fair, and that but and that's good. Like like biases are good in some ways because you know that, so you can judge it correctly. And then, but also when people are biased, they tend to be very honest. I've noticed like historical accounts, and even today, like like people will record stuff where. They don't realize already it's bad, you know, like who knows this podcast, <laughs> but like they'll, they'll record stuff and then find out later, like, Ooh, you know, and then, so the next group that does it, they won't, um, they won't record what they're doing. 
And so, but, but it's that first, you know, those primary source documents are usually very honest in a surprising way, I find. Not, often not complete, often one-sided, but very often honest from their perspective, which is useful. See, that's all useful information. So anyway, I'm sorry, I'm ranting, Jesus. Um, it's your podcast, you can rant if you want to. No, 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 I want to hear a bit more about your story. So, okay, so you're on the Viking ship, or Viking Whoa. ship. Oh, God. okay, that moved on quick. You're on the catamaran. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try, let's figure, let's get to the Viking ship. So how, but, but oh, wow. how, okay. how do we get to the Viking ship? Like, so you're on the catamaran until you're about 13, right? Or you're older. Yeah. So we, oh, we did a bunch of stuff in the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Sri Lanka, uh, Oman, up the Red Sea, Djibouti. Djibouti was, oh, that, okay. So Djibouti was probably the most disturbing place I visited. Hmm. Um, Djibouti is a small French, it sounds like I got it in for the French. Obviously I have it in for the French. I'm English. But, <laughs> slight coincidence, many French people are lovely. Um, so we were in Djibouti, which is a tiny French colony, and still is a French colony, uh, at the mouth of the Red Sea on the south coast. And I've never seen such a divide between... I mean, you go to San Francisco and there's a big divide between the rich and the poor, but that's like the mega rich and the poor. But in Djibouti, it was... So you've got the French and they've got, you walk down one street and there's a patisserie and a French supermarket and there's French women all dressed up in their elegant, whatever French designer clothes are. I'm not very good at design. Um, and then you walk into another street and it is just absolute poverty. And it's it's people from Ethiopia and Eritrea and locals and they're, they just have nothing. And at the same time, it's also a big base for the French Foreign Legion. So the whole place is filled with sort of brothels and prostitutes everywhere. Again, I was quite young, so I'm not... I think there was there was a girl on the boat that had come with us from, I think, Indonesia or something like that. Dutch girl. And I think she'd struck up a relationship with a guy in a bar who was... I, I hope I get this right, because otherwise she might hear this and then tell me I got it all wrong, but... From, from a child's perspective, this is what I think happened. She struck up with a relationship with the guy in the bar, and I think he was a pimp. And I think he was trying to get passage out of out of there on the ship. I think that's why he struck up a relationship with her. And somehow through him, we met some uh, Ethiopian prostitutes. And they invited us round to their house for dinner. And they were, they were really, really nice. They cooked us this beautiful, traditional Ethiopian dinner with sort of flatbread and what have you but I remember the the power was constantly going out so we'd be trying to eat dinner and then just everything would just go completely black and then 10 minutes later it would come back up again whereas two streets over in the French quarter everything's fine wow <laughs> um, I remember there was this poor I, I didn't I was a kid I didn't I mean I vaguely knew what a prostitute was sex worker I think is probably the appropriate term these days I don't know anyway <laughs> sex worker I knew what a sex worker was and um, there was this other girl in another room and I, I felt really sorry for her. So she had, I think, I found out later that she'd had a lover and he'd said that he was going to take her away or something like that. And then he'd just run off and left her and she'd jumped out of a window, but she'd only broken her legs. So she was up in bed with two broken legs and I felt felt very sorry for her. And I thought, well, what cheers me is a I don't know, 10-year-old kid up. I like card tricks. So I was sat there with her trying to do card tricks and stuff. And she seemed pretty happy about that. But they're, they're just, they were just really, really nice 
nice people. Uh, that that memory stuck in my mind a lot because I felt so sorry for this poor girl that had tried to jump out of a window. But yeah, Djibouti, not a nice place. It might have changed by now, but but back then it was it was pretty horrible. And then after that, it was Egypt with so many. I, I still want to know if does. I guess not, but when sort of naval ships and so on go through the Suez Canal, do they have to give bribes to the pilots? Because we, it was, it's expected you have to give a bribe to the pilot to go through the Suez Canal. So it has to be whiskey and cigarettes, and that is, it's not even, it's not even, it is basically policy. So we stocked up on Marlboros and cheap whiskey. To our, give to our the is, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, we'll get somebody, um, you know, somebody in the podcast at some point from the navy yeah. who can tell yeah. us. When, when an aircraft carrier goes through the sewers, does it, the captain have to give them cheap whiskey and cigarettes? If I interview somebody, <laughs> that will be the top of my list of questions right there. Yeah. All right, so how what, what do you give them? Come on, yeah. <laughs> be honest. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? And then in Egypt, I went and saw the Titanic for the first time, and so weird. So wait, you saw the Titanic? The film. Oh, okay, okay, got it. And so somehow we ended up being invited to some local's house. And it was very strictly Islamic. The women were all in one room. The men were all in another room. Mm -hmm. And being a child, I was in the room with the women and we were watching the Titanic. And the whole film was as normal, except for the sex scene in it, which they had changed. Mm. So it's the scene where where they're having sex in the car and like there's a hand on the window and it sort of comes down and stuff like that. And what they'd done is they cut out the video of it and they'd played the video where they stood on the bow with the arms out, you know, the classic uh, scene from it. So yeah. they had that again, but they left the audio in. <laughs> so you've got this sort of moaning and panting and heavy breathing and you've just got the, the two of them standing on the bow with their arms out. So anybody who watched that, their minds must have been boggling going, what am I missing here? <laughs> Well, in fact, you're missing nothing. It's just a rocking car and a hand going down the window. Well, that's like that's like watching Braveheart when we were in high school, and we we loved Braveheart. And we had a friend who was Mormon who really couldn't watch the film, but he wanted, you know, he wanted to watch it. So we're like, well, what if we just, what if you closed your eyes during the violent scenes, and we'll just describe what was happening? Way worse. Oh, well, much worse. Like at the Battle of Sterling, and he's just like, I'm done. I'm out. Like, like you're hearing just. All this stuff. Where, oh my gosh! And they just hacked off a guy's head. And of course, the human imagination—like you, you know how it is. Like, like we, our imaginations oftentimes are actually better than what you see in yeah. reality. Yeah, much. But that's why and if you're telling a good horror story, you don't show. The yeah, horror. less is more. Oh my yeah. gosh! Anybody writing a modern movie, please, less is more. So don't show so. us the whole thing. Like, yeah, seriously. And um, it's true. And. So, yeah, he couldn't even get through the film. So I can only imagine those poor, those poor women, <laughs> or happy women. I don't know. Like you know, who who knows? I have no idea. I just remember it being very strange, very puzzled as a child that runs around naked with a bunch of naked people on a boat. So how long were you in England? Wait, oh wait, sorry, back up. What? <laughs> so well, you found it very puzzling. As a, say very, that again. <laughs> I said I said I found the the editing in Titanic very puzzling as a as a child that was mostly naked, growing up on a boat full of naked people. All right. And maybe I didn't mention that earlier, but... No, you did not. Most of the time, people, everybody was naked. See, people, people have a hard time visualizing this. So they, <laughs> they it's audio. Well, it makes and sense. And I'm not going to show so pictures if you're, of that. If you're in hot weather on a boat, uh, if you're in cold weather on a boat, you wear warm gear and you wear wet weather clothing. If you're in hot weather on a boat, you've got two options. You can either wear all the wet weather gear, which you then have to clean and keep clean, and you're too hot and you're sweating 
so your sweat's coming out from the inside and so on. Or what makes a lot more sense is to just be naked because it's warm enough you don't have to wear clothes. It just makes sense. That's what the Polynesians did. It's only missionaries and so on telling us that being naked is a sin, which it definitely isn't. I don't care what your religion is. I'm sure the Christian God doesn't have a problem with nakedness, no matter what your preachers might tell you. So, yeah, we were, we were naked all the time. Hmm. Uh, not all the time, obviously, but when it was practical and made sense. One good garb to wear in bad weather is just a uh, raincoat. So you're naked apart from the raincoat. So uh, when the water comes up from underneath, it goes over your legs. But when it rains down, it goes off the raincoat and you stay relatively wow. dry. So, so literally everybody on the boat looked like a flasher. That's... <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. Not that kind of raincoat. We're talking about... <laughs> picture those big raincoats. or whatever. Bing! You know, the sailors wear the gear. That makes some good pictures. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, so... Uh, yeah, and I remember you mentioning too... If you want the photographs, you can go to warham.com and there are plenty of pictures of naked people if you want to see them. There also you Also that you should buy. All right. Um, so, yeah, I remember you mentioning one time when we were on the Viking ship, you were talking about how the Polynesian garb had changed due to due to missionary influence mm, and yes. basically the natives they had very loose garments yep. that were i mean almost, almost nothing you had like a little mm-hmm. skirt and that's what most yep. people wore but it was great for you know you had large humans i mean the polynesians like anybody's polynesian tends to be physically they're, they're, depends it depends so there's a, a bu- but, there's a bunch of different body types so polynesia the pacific is a big place yeah so if you get somebody from tahiti will look totally different somebody from Melanesia will look totally different somebody from vanuatu and so on so um if you're talking about hawaiians they're pretty buff okay but if you're talking about tahitians then they're more sort of slender and elegant Interesting. As, as a you know vague rule and then Melanesians are different again and so on so it's not it's they're not one people they're a bunch of different peoples that is fascinating. How God, well? Okay, now, now I want to go a whole different route, but we're not going to do that because um, I'm curious to know the history that we. Because I thought the the native Hawaiians that we know them today came from Tahiti, and obviously they're pretty warlike. Like there was a lot of wars and inter, you know. So I'm just wondering how stable Tahiti was. And I if, don't know. If anyway, I, I, yeah. I don't know either. Folks, do your own research. But uh, I'd be I'd be curious to know if the body types. I know in Vanuatu, which is where we met the most friendliest of people. I, at some point, I must have met some cannibals, because from various things that I've read, they were eating people up to, at the time that I was there thirty years ago, and I met people that were older than thirty. So at some point, I must have met some cannibals. Wow! Um, <laughs> but they were lovely. So, and I think it's perfectly possible to be a cannibal and still be a lovely person. Okay. Um, there, there you go. I mean, if that is... Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, I'm not talking about murdering people and eating them, but... Right, you know. yeah. Or just taking a little piece and... Yeah, well, I don't know. I wasn't there, but... <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, let's change the subject. Change the subject, fair <laughs> enough. Uh <laughs> God, what were we on? Naked, naked, naked. We're talking about nakedness. Okay, so um, yeah, so so that the the garbs were really good at, at basically people wouldn't get fungus and stuff, but when they started wearing ooh, the Western oh, garbs, oh fungus, oh yeah, my goodness. When they started okay, wearing the so Western garbs, another thing that the missionaries oh. have to answer for: getting all the people to cover up. So we went to some islands, and just everybody on the island would have a ringworm. Oh, 
just all over them. And the reason they have ringworm is because they're all wearing Western clothes. So they're wearing T-shirts and shorts and this, that and the other. But they managed, they've got the clothes aspect of the culture. They don't have the washing of the clothes aspect of the culture. So they've got like one pair or whatever and they just wear it. Because yeah. in the past, they would wear something that's biodegradable. They'd either wear nothing or they'd wear something like a tapper cloth or something which is made from tree bark, which has its own various anti-organic enzymes in it or whatever. And then you'd make another one from the next tree bark. So you don't you don't wash your things. So they're wearing these filthy T-shirts and shorts because that's what the missionaries have told them to. And it sticks close to the skin and they're sweating. And then they've all got ringworm. So then, then you need the missionaries to come back again to bring the medicine to treat the ringworm. It's just a repetitive cycle. Missionaries are... They, they did a lot of harm in the Pacific. Maybe let's not... Well, they, they mean well, but... Some of them might. But intentions don't matter yeah. when you're causing grief. Mm. So I get, I get what you mean, Jamie. All right, well, let's move off. Jesus, we've hit all the topics. Racism, religion. We need to get to politics. Here we go. No, <laughs> man. There's going to be a lot of editing in this. Um, so you get so after these voyages, you get back to England. Okay, so uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, Djibouti, through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, lots of bribery. Israel got bizarrely bullied by some teenage girls in Israel for calling the Armageddon movie Armageddon. Apparently in Israel it's called Armageddon. <laughs> there you go. That's my memory of Israel. Um, so, yeah, went to Israel. Had a fantastic time seeing the sites in Israel. Jerusalem, Holocaust Museum. Where else we? Oh, yeah, we went to Egypt, saw the pyramids. Had a bit of a holiday. Ended up in Greece. I think we went to Italy at one point, but we ended up in Greece and in Corfu. And that's basically where the boat then went to rest for an extended period of time. He did all this without a gun. Yeah, we did. We we had a very pistol. <laughs> you know what? We had a very pistol with no ammunition. Oh. Do you know what a very pistol is? No, what's that? It's a World War II flare gun. Cool. Okay. So it's for firing flares. Yeah. But we didn't have any ammunition. And we had a machete. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, a good, strong English attitude you don't need a gun when you can look down and tell people that the queen will come and get you if you don't do what we say <laughs> work for hundreds of years anyway jeez oh, uh, <laughs> there's the politics all right now we're done this podcast is officially over that's why you don't need a gun we're either going to be the most viral successful thing in the world or nobody will listen ever again okay so you can edit that bit out so we got to Greece and in Corfu, and then I went back to do my GCC. So that's like my final exams and stuff. So I was then away from the boat, apart from the summers, from that point on. And I decided I wanted, I thought I was going to become a diving instructor, and that was going to be my profession. So I learned to dive in England, in Cornwall. And then I went out to Greece, and I made friends with an absolutely fantastic family really really nice people so it was um it was a guy and it was a whole family business it was a, a man his wife his son and his daughter and they all ran this diving school and the wife i think did the sort of the back end the dive shop and the man and the daughter and the son took out the the ship and took tourist diving and i went on one dive with them one year 
and they were like, yeah, we like you, come back next year, give you a job or something like that. And I came back the next year and they they took me in as one of their own. I, I lived with them some years and, you know, I came back every every summer and, and worked with them teaching diving. I mean, it was it was Greek, so it was somewhat loose with the strict letter of the law and the rules. So I didn't have my diving instructor qualification, but I was still taking people out and so on. But so so the the the, the guy, the husband or what have you, the guy who whose business it was, he was so he was an, a Greek Navy SEAL, but he'd had to do his training with the American Navy SEALs. So he got sent off to the American Navy SEALs to do his training and then he became a Greek Navy SEAL. So he went through everything that the Americans did. And I remember there was there was one wetsuit on the boat that fit fit me like a glove and it was like really expensive really nice and what have you and that was the one that I wore when I was taking groups of tourists or whatever diving and at some point I, I said to him where did you get this wetsuit from it's so good and he was like well there was a there was a sunken ship that I was having to do something for for the government and um I found it on a body in the ship oh my gosh but by this point, I've been wearing it for a year already, already. So I was like, "Yeah, whatever. Okay, I'll keep wearing it." Wow. <laughs> but um, yeah, he was he was an exceptionally good diver, an exceptionally good person, and uh, he he really took care of me. So yeah, I did that for for quite a while. But then one day I got beaten up in town, and I decided to go and do karate classes, which I'd wanted to do for a long time anyway, but I hadn't done because I got bullied at school by some kids that were like, yeah, we do karate, and then they went to beat me up, so I had this slightly negative connotation of it. But I went in, and there was this really old guy there, and he was fantastic, and I got really into it, did it for eight years. Folks, just so you know, Jamie's story came out after The Karate Kid. It was not based off The Karate Kid. You just... Told the plot of the Karate Kid, right? Oh, there. okay, okay, maybe, but <laughs> no, no, no. Outsider coming in, old kid. man teaching karate. Yeah, other kids that know karate that beat you up. Yeah, that's, and, that's the Karate Kid in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Not just not just the martial arts aspect, but I learned a lot about life, about it. So about um, can't remember the name of it, but that chap's book, the founder of Monk, Gishin Funakoshi's book, about it. Um, it's all Japanese poetry, but it's got some good stuff in there. But yeah, I learned a lot of mental stuff from it as well about how... So if you're in a fight, if you're really in a fight, if it's a real fight and the fight has actually started, then there's only two outcomes. Either you win the fight or you die. And if you don't have that attitude, you're not going to win the fight. So, and that attitude translates quite well to, to real life. So if you don't... when Whenever you enter a project or, or anything like that, enter it with that mindset that either you you're going to do it or you're going to die those are the only two options and that is that's a lot of stress <laughs> no that's no it, no it's not a lot of stress it's, it's quite calming because it takes away all of the busyness and all of the hassle mm. you've only got you've only got one thing to think about it makes you very focused interesting so you don't you don't have all the other worries this that and the other it's either it's like the jedi either yeah, do say- or do not do you know, yeah, because, there is no try. Yeah, there is no try because all of Star Wars is lifted, not all of Star Wars, but a lot of Star Wars is lifted directly from Japanese. Yeah. Yoda's culture. grammar is Japanese, I believe. Is it? I believe so. Yeah, let huh. me think. Well, give me a Yoda line, I'll tell you. Uh, 
<laughs> for yeah, way to put the pressure on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there is no. Come on, you get it. When 900 years old, UB will not look as good or something like that. Oh, God. All right, I have to really yeah. think about it now. <laughs> it's um, but yeah, it gave me it gave me a lot of very good life lessons, and um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. The thing that two things stopped me doing it. First off, I had a knee injury, so I got swept. It was, it was after I became black belt, and I was training with another black belt, and he was quite a lot lighter than I was. And I think he, in his mind, he thought I was big and heavy, so he put a lot of force into the technique. But he did the correct technique, and with the correct technique, you don't need a lot of force. And it was a sweep, and I ended up breaking my ACL. Mm. And I had to have a major operation for it, and I was like on crutches for six months. And, you know, I went back to karate, but it was never quite the same. And then the other thing that happened was, in my mind, I wasn't good enough. And because I was a black belt, I was six. so the the club that I trained with was, was very good. It was a non profit organization, and the training fees it was I think when I started it was like a pound or two pounds for two hours, so basically nothing. It just just covered the cost of the hall, wow. and everybody there did it for the love of it. So it wasn't not a money making organization. But the expectation was that once you got to black belt, which took a long time, you would then become a teacher. So you, then you would start paying back. But I never felt like I was, I never felt like I was good enough. I felt like that in another 20 or 30 years, I might be good enough to be a teacher. And that's just my own mental problems. So I felt like, ah, I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be teaching. And that, with the combination of the knee injury, meant that I ended up dropping out, sadly, after eight years and getting second down. I do want to go back, but hey-ho. Um, where was I going? How old were you? When I dropped out or yeah. when I started? When you, when you dropped out. Uh, 28. When did we meet? I think I was 23, something like that. I think I must have started when I was like 20. Oh, okay. All right. That so, runs parallel to the rest of the story because I've gone and skipped past the Viking ship now. But that was my uh, karate experience. After karate, I then, well, there was a slight overlap. I ended up, my parents were like, so I had various jobs. I had a job at McDonald's, I had a job at Burger King. I had various non-jobs i had a job at a pig farm that was incredible the the guy was a strange guy from london that used to run a um phone sex line business and him and his wife made a fortune running this phone sex line business and they retired at i don't know in their late 30s to cornwall to open up a pig farm which they thought would be a nice retirement and then that obviously lost them all their money and at one point i remember i'd be feeding the pigs in the tractor which I didn't have a license for. And the guy would call me up on my phone and say, quick, quick, go and hide the, tri- the, the tractor. The bailiffs are here again. So I have to go and hide the tractor down some back road in Cornwall somewhere while the bailiffs came. So this is not like the movie Snatch, where the guy's like, never trust the person. He who did quote it. that line too really? much. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, and there was this hilarious, hilarious and also tragic time. So if you know nothing about pigs, pigs are brutal. They're cannibals. Oh, yeah. The freaking can- yeah. So we had the mothers and their piglets in pens right next to the cafe, uh, which serves... I know, I always thought it was a bit weird, but, you know, full English breakfast, bacon, yeah. eggs. Oh, that makes sense. It was yeah. run by the owners, by the pig farmers? or Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah, okay. so they had a little farm cafe on the property. Um, farm to mouth, makes sense to me. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it was very, very nice until one of the mothers started eating her own children. 
And then I got this call from 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 the owner, and he was like, "Quick, quick! You got to get up to the farm. One of the mo- mothers is eating her own kids, and we we can't let the customers in the cafe see. So you know, all these little families in there in the in the cafe having a nice picturesque little Cornish sunshine holiday, eating their what? eggs and bacon. And then there's a mother in the field right next to them, literally murdering and eating her own piglet." Well, if we haven't created a bunch of vegans just now, we created a, <laughs> several uh, people of uh, different religion beliefs, religious beliefs. Okay, so so what, what I want to—I had a bunch of jobs. Was she not fed? Like, what? What the heck? What, was she not getting enough food? She no, 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 no. You get bored and eat your kids? Like, yeah, I mean, I, pretty much. Yeah, you a bigger pen. Uh, and then once once a pig starts doing that, then they'll keep doing it. So they have to go to slaughter. Once you get the taste, oh yep. boy, yep, yep, mothers be warned. Um, All right. <laughs> so yeah, one time it's and then PSA, they uh... have to be taken away from their children, oh but my it's not, God. not okay anymore. Wow. Uh, okay, so pigs and eating. So I had various different jobs. Various different jobs, yeah. Um, and I was super into karate as well. And then at some point I hadn't had a job for six months and my parents were like, this is unacceptable. You have to go and have a job, which is good parenting um because i was like no i do karate that's my job but you know it's not a real job so they found some course that happened over the winter it was three thousand pounds relatively cheap and you'd get your windsurfer instructor qualification your kayak instructor and your dinghy soda instructor qualification so i went and did that course which was really good fun I mean, it was really hard especially the kayaking i loved my kayak instructor because he did martial arts as well so he would you know, we're, we're kayaking in ice. You know, you've got to break the ice on the lake to kayak sometimes. And then you just come up and you just shove you over, capsize your kayak, steal your paddle, and then leave you there for 10 seconds or so. Then throw you the paddle and then expect you to Eskimo roll, Inuit roll, whatever it is when you get up in kayak that is socially acceptable <laughs> and, and carry on. So, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic training. I really enjoyed that. And then, so after that... I then went to look for a job teaching sailing and applied at various different places. And then there was one place where I'd applied and then they said where they were and it was a 20 minute commute. And for me in Cornwall, that was too much. 20 minutes was way too long a drive. Yeah. You... So I sent them an email back saying, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I don't want the job. It's, it's too far away. And then they sent me an email back saying, please at least come for the interview. We really need somebody. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll come for the interview. And at the time I had a, a quad bike. So I rode my quad bike down and it was a gorgeous spring day and the bluebells were out and it was really nice back roads all the way. And I was like, okay, it's a long commute, but at least it's a nice commute. Mm-hmm. And then I met the, the chief instructor, a chap called Mike, who's one of my best friends to this day. And he interviewed me by taking me for a sale and just chatting, just having a perfectly normal chat. And then unbeknownst to me, he was interviewing me and testing me the whole time, but I didn't realize it. <laughs> so like he was getting me to do all these various sailing maneuvers and so on whilst trying to distract me by talking. And then he, he gave me he gave me the job. Yeah. So I worked there also for about eight years. But so my karate career, I think, ended after working there for about two years. And then I started and then I'd already been working there for two years and then worked there for another six years. So and that's all post-Viking ship then? All post-Viking ship, yes. Okay. So the Viking ship happened because my parents went to an ISBSA conference, so International Symposium on Ship and Boat Archaeology. 
So because they do all this maritime archaeology, they were invited to go to the conference, and it was held in Roskilde. And it was a great... I think I was 17, 18 at the time, something like that. And I loved the Viking ships, so... I guess you always kind of rebel against what your parents are into. So I didn't like Cashman's this, that, and the other. But as soon as I saw a Viking ship, I was like, wow, it smells right. You know, you got that smell of the tar. Oh, yeah. It's outside. I went for a sail on the fjord. I oh, yeah. loved it. I, I just completely fell in love with it. Um, and I got chatting to various people at the museum. And they were like, well, come back next year. You can go sail on this ship called Otter. Cargo, cargo Viking ship. Yeah. So I came back the next year. went and sailed on the ship. Had my first girlfriend first first sort of love relationship and that all complicated everything because I didn't realize I'd met her at karate and then when I was on the airplane going out to the ship she sent me this text saying I love you and I didn't like I just thought she was a friend and then all of a sudden I was like oh that's what all those feelings are <laughs> and so I ended up cutting that trip short to go back to see her and then went out to Greece to go and teach diving again but that gave me a taste for for Viking ships and then I don't know how many years later four years later or something the viking ship museum at roskilde put out this thing saying we want crew for the sea stallion and i thought go and give it a try i think this was in between burger king mcdonald's and pig farming or whatever yeah go and give it a try and i went for an interview i went to the stayed in the youth hostel and there was this strange dude with a shaved head there that had a Canadian accent and uh, he seemed really cool and really nice and uh, I was like yeah I like I like this guy and there were some other people that came in and we did the interview process and I was like I'm never going to get this there's so many people here and you know, you know I've got no experience and, and what have you. you know I've only been on this one Viking ship for two weeks and I left early I remember there was this Spanish guy there I think and he was just yeah. talking the shit. Oh yeah, he was. He was I remember that. he was God's gift to the sea. He yep. was. And uh anyway, so Carson got me into the office for the interview. Car- and Carson's the captain of the, the vessel. Yeah, yeah, Carson's the captain. And um he was sort of looking through his notes or whatever and he said, "So you've done this this and this." And I was like, "Yep." Yeah. And he said, "Well, you're really overqualified for this then." And I'm like, "I am." <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not actually that good. <laughs> yeah, well, what you and I did not know is that they were considering people that had literally never sailed on a boat ever. Like, like because huh. you, well, you had archaeologists. How did you find that out then? You had archaeologists. You had Because I talked to them, Jamie. I talked yeah. to my crewmates. <laughs> like, there were people that literally, like, they had zero experience on ships. Mm. Like, there were people that were, they, they taught themselves how to eat meat because they knew there was going to be meat on the voyage. Like, it, it was just, yeah, I... I I know it sounds crazy. Okay, <laughs> making funny faces, but it's true. Um, that yeah. cook though. What that cook though? Oh God! I love meat. Oh, but oh no! I wanted to be a vegetarian by the end. I wanted I was, to be a I vegetarian by the end like, of that trip. I that would, was I too will, much. Meat. I will hurt somebody if I could, like, if I knew that would get me a salad. <laughs> just, we were done with that. that oh God! Too much I, meat. Oh, I gave him so many suggestions. I, I I took a poll of of the crew because he's like, well, the people don't really want salad yes they do and, and so i said well i'll pull the crew like, like i'm just like i'm, I'm preparing that so so i i, I interviewed the forecastle 100 percent 100 percent of the forecastle or for or the four part foreskin for so not forecastle sorry foreskin it's the four part of the ship skin, called the force not foreskin which there's another story that we're not gonna go there anyway for skip which is the front part of the ship there were there were four sections to the the boat you had the four skib midter skib which is like the middle part and then 
the off skid, which is the after area, the and back the part with the halyard, and the lofting, which is where the officers were. That's how they divided, structured the vessel, J- just for ease, uh, because otherwise you're, you're, you have sixty-five people on an open boat crammed that's only hundred feet long and twelve feet wide. So you can imagine, you, you don't, you want people in their areas. They need to know where they belong. So you kind of, we don't know how the Vikings did it historically, but that's the system they came up with. It seemed to work. It worked pretty well, I thought. Each section kind of developed its own culture after a while. Oh, funny. did we? Oh, yeah, we did. And the forward part of the ship, we were wild. Anyway. The best part of the ship. Oh, God, it was fun. Uh, wildest ride there was. So I interviewed the forward part of the ship. I interviewed the foreskip. 100%. Then I got about halfway through the middle part of the ship. I only got 100% of the halfway where people were like, yes, we want a salad. So I, I went to him and said, look, I've only I've interviewed 40 people. They all, like 30 people. They all want a salad. So we need some salads. Well, I can't, like, like, it's not going to last long enough, this and that. So I came up with a list of ingredients that would last for weeks, like canned corn and like things you could add to a salad that would just literally last you weeks, weeks. We sailed all the way across the Atlantic and we had fresh fruit and vegetables and eggs and cheese and not fresh meat, but dried meats the whole trip. There you it go. It is possible. It is possible. So this, anyway, I, it was it was without refrigeration. Yeah, and, and you know, and to his credit, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. Nobody else stepped up to the plate to to make a salad, but I sure did try. Anyway, well, I did, but and then I had a huge argument with Pook over it as well because I wanted to make the perfect vegetarian pasta. Oh yeah, and I'm trying to do it, you know, on a small scale for four people. And Pook very sensibly was like, "Jamie, this isn't going to work. You're being stupid." <laughs> you need to do it like this and then took my recipe and changed everything for the better because puts yeah. a genius and she knows what she's doing but um and then we got our vegetarian vegan pasta thing never underestimate the bluntness of northern mm. europeans they will tell you had the, exactly what's on their mind I had the exact opposite experience on gaia where we had a vegan macrobiotic cook oh, and by the end of the voyage the crew were just screaming for meat yep. they were just on deck going in spanish carne carne <laughs> Carne, carne. <laughs> so back to the boat. So you've my, got to have a balanced diet on your ships. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. And there are a lot of people that had zero experience on boats. And so I knew in my interview, because I thought I had no chance either. I was like, geez. I mean, my only thing I could sell, because I'm like, there are people probably from all over the world that are applying for this. They're going to be really into it and, and really experienced. And all I can offer is my time. So I said, I'm willing to volunteer and help out for a few months prior Get the boat ready, whatever you need. My time is was my offering. I get to the interview. They're like, are you, would you be willing to take orders from somebody who has less experience than you? <laughs> I was like, oh crap, I might have a chance here. All I right, think yes. At the end the of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, the majority of the crew was moving cargo. Yeah. And we're what mo- they were looking ballast. for. Yeah, we're movable ballast. ballast. And what they were looking for was people that could get on with each other. Exactly. Which is a great way to be. Which I remember. Is, yeah. I had one tall ship sailor who was like, you know, one of these, you know, tough macho types. And he's like, you were on a Viking ship? Yeah. And, and it's like, how? And, and, you know, and it's not that I wasn't physically strong enough or anything, but, but he, I think he just wanted me to be tougher than I was or more of an asshole. And I'm just You're like, joking. Well, that was my impression because I was, I was thinking like, there's no I would way. I'd love to have seen him. There's down the no RC. way that guy would have been on. Well, we had a one fellow. We had yeah. one fellow in the forward part of the ship who was the closest to that. He was kind of a macho guy. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the four that got carted off because he got hypothermic. So he talked a tough... I don't don't remember him. You don't remember him? Oh, I remember him. Because he talked a tough talk and all this (laughs) stuff. But the reality is, like, 
you don't. I mean, unless you, unless you've been really cold, like you don't know your limits, right? You're, until you've been there. So some people just suck. I mean, they just karate. Yeah, you either you do it or you die. Well, there you go. Well, this this guy was getting a little too uncomfortable, and I I I don't want to speak for him because I wasn't in his body, but he was. You know, we were all shaking. I remember shaking. I remember you shaking when shoot. Oh God, that was terrific that trip. Yeah, it was. It was tough. Like you know, I was hallucinating by the end of it. (laughs) For real, I was halluc. I was sat on the for the on lookout, and I was just seeing dolphins everywhere, and there were no dolphins. Whoa! All right, I definitely didn't get that. But there was so that on that on that. So we were going down the Irish Sea, and it was. I don't think the weather was that. I mean, it was reasonably bad. Force what? Seven, eight. It wasn't that bad, but you're on a hundred foot. So what would happen? What because we are on a hundred foot open boat, and we were just the swells were the wrong direction. They were getting so they had thought it was going to be more yeah. on the quarter, and it ended up being more on the bow. And I just remember seeing that bow at night. And granted, everything's a little bit, you know, moves a little more at night. So everything's a little bit bigger. But I remember seeing the bow flexing. Like we'd hit a swell, and the bow would just like, whoop, like it would it would yeah. get wider. And then get narrower again, and I remember yeah, it's because good boat design, good boats have to flex. Fair enough, but God, if that, that I could physically see it from twenty feet away, mm. that was that was new to me. That's what I loved about that ship, <laughs> seeing it flex and move because you could see it twist. Well, and, and that the, was the, the problem. Rhythm. They were concerned about the twist because it was getting you know, That's a good it, thing. It, well, but it can get to the point where it gets out of hand. Yeah, okay, and so they they brought the the because uh, I remember I had this warp. It was a god awful warping sound. It was like. Rawr like I'm not even doing it justice and it was right next to my head and I remember kind of say, like by that point I was pretty seasick and I'm like oh god and cold and miserable and I was like uh, I think the uh, just this needs to get checked out and then they brought the, the carpenter over and he's like oh yeah we need to like hammer something <laughs> so I don't think they did it right then but but after that part they, they hammered in a few extra planks <laughs> or a few, few things but yeah I was just like oh man I really I don't want to go to the water so right I, now <laughs> I normally get seasick on everything I never got seasick on the Viking ship. Wow, it's just meant to be. I don't know why, but I just did not get seasick on that. That's ship. right, because it was you and you and and Signa. It was the four mm. of us. So it was me and Pook. Pook yeah. was my buddy on that yeah. first part of the voyage, and you and Signa. And you two weren't seasick, and Pook yeah. and I were were very ill. We were taking yeah. turns holding each other's yeah. like waists. You know, our, our uh, we, we had these <laughs> we had these inflatable life jackets that would self inflate if you went in the water. And so we're holding that was the kind of thing you'd hold the person's life yeah. jacket while they're puking, and then we we take the next turn. And okay, now I'm holding the life jacket. <laughs> it was just, yeah, that was rough. That was fun though. That was so. I remember on that on that trip, the rough one down the Irish Sea. I had been on watch, so it was four hours on, four hours off. I was, I had my four hours on watch, and then it was so rough. They were saying to the foreskip people, "Okay, you can go back to the midships yeah. to have rest." So there was different climate in every different part of the ship, and the the foreship <laughs> always had the worst climate. So it could be like ten degrees colder. Oh my god! At least, the, yeah, yeah. So so there'd be like in t-shirts, sunbathing in the aft skip, and we'll be in the foreskip in full wet weather gear, shivering away. Anyway, yeah. so so they said to me. And everybody else that was on watch, you can go back to the midships to have a rest. And it's the middle of the night. I can't remember what watch it was, but sometime in the middle of the night. So I go back to the midships and I'm just sort of trying to find my little place to s- snuggle down and get a vague bit of sleep. And then I happen to have put myself next to the midship pump. Oh, no. And then somebody comes up to me. And this is, is like, a bilge pump. This is to yes, pump water out correct, off the, the bilge pump, which yeah. was on constantly during this part of the Oh, this poor. Yeah, the middle, middle part of the ship, they worked yeah. hard. That was that was their, and their and culture. so somebody that was not from my part of the ship came up to me and was like, 
why aren't you working? Get on that bilge pump. <laughs> and then me being the polite British boy was like, okay. And I then spent my two hours of my four hours off watch pumping away on the bilge pump because nobody had told me to stop. And then finally, somebody from the midships came up and said, what are you doing? You're from the foreskip, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, but I was told to pump. And they're like, no, no, go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, each part of the boat had a job. So that was the midship's main job. They also had the sheet. I remember, but only one person needs to. Yeah, they didn't have real jobs in the midship. Well, when it reefed, when it no, 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 come on, come on. Like they're pumping nonstop for for that fit. So we we did. So the Viking ship was really fast. It it makes ten or twelve knots without breaking a sweat. You know, theoretical hull speed. I think is around sixteen knots. Same as guy. Just saying. Oh, well, see, there we go. All right. So anyway, uh, double canoes. Uh, So the God. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah the forward part of the ship we were on we were bow watch obviously we also did we, we had the what was called the bodice which was this big log that extended out the sail the tack would come down and in order to get a, a better angle to the wind you would stick out this log and basically and and so if you had a tack you had to undo that so you'd let the sail fly which was kind of and these are pretty thick ropes i mean they're like you know inch and a half what two inches i can't remember it was pretty thick and then you'd take the log and shove it in a hole on the other side of the boat, and, and you know, so you'd lift it up, bring it over, shove it in on the other, you know the opposite side, and then and then you tack down, and then at that point they could once it was belayed and made off, you could sheet home the, the sheet. It's kind of hard to explain; you'd have to see it done or experience it, honestly. But long story short, that that was our job on the forward part of the ship, more or less. The middle part of the ship, they'd reef. And then they were pumping. That was their primary job. And then the after part of the ship, they had the halyard. And then they would like sunbathe, as far as I know. Like, I remember we were crossing, not the Irish Sea. Though I got a funny story about the Irish Sea. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, well. anyway, we were crossing the North Sea. And we had that. It was kind of like a, like a following sea, following wind. and st- I think it was the North Sea. No, we must have been headed north. We must have been headed from up to Denmark, from, from Holland. And anyway, regardless, it wasn't that bad a day. But on the forward part of the ship, we were getting splashed constantly with water. So I was in my full foul weather gear, covered head to toe in salt. And I cross behind the, the sail, you know, and I'm walking, I'm holding the shrouds. And then and then I get to the after part of the ship and literally people are half naked sunbathing. They're, <laughs> they're staring at me big eyed because I had to go back. I had to message something to like the back part of the ship, like to the officers or whatever. And so they like big eyed and they're like you're covered in water you're covered in salt i'm like yeah cause, yeah because we've got to work we got, it's no. crazy it's just tough so, so I, I remember so, so, funny. so two things two things are the middle part of the ship was the love part of the ship we were the wild part the forward part oh the middle so part was the love oh my god there were so many so, hookups so one one problem there were Damn oh. it, i missed all the hookups oh my gosh are you kidding no 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 i remember i remember sitting there it was at night and like so one of the, the we didn't si- have time to hook up we were working oh jamie oh <laughs> man I had stories i will tell you outside this podcast so we were sitting there and um i remember it was at night and we had there was a danish navy seal named i called him Bo. i couldn't, I couldn't pronounce his freaking name so oh, I rem- no, Bo, you, you remember Bo? yeah i remember well Bo. no it's like Danish, yeah. but i called him Bo. yeah and he and i got along great because he's surrounded by a bunch of pacifists and i'm like yeah, you know what uh, I'm, I'm ambivalent so so <laughs> we, we we chat about everything but I remember he was sitting there and he was solid. I mean, he would sit there for four hours with that sheet. That was incredible. Any weather, it didn't matter. He just was focused and yeah. good to go. Like, yeah, very, very, you know, worthy shipmate. But I'll never forget. 
crossing into his section. And he's sitting there at the sheet, but he wasn't staring at the sheet. He was staring across at three couples, six people, all making out. And I'm like, what? He was looking as miserable as I saw him on that voyage. And I was like, hey, Bo, how's it going? He's like, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get any of that on the Viking ship. I just got sailing, but... Uh, sorry, Jamie, it's true. Saw it with my own eyes. So, Heard it with my own ears. Sorry. Speaking of the, the, the four skip and, and the differences and so mm. on, I remember in that interview with Carson, he said, if you could pick, where would you like to go on the ship? And I immediately said, I want to go in the front part of the ship. Because, mm. you know, I can see the most, it'd be the most fun. And he said, are you sure? It's going to be really hard. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely sure. <laughs> so I remember that. Okay, and then, so the other thing I remember about the four skip was we were always asking for more food. Yeah. Because we were always colder. So we were always hungry. And then, <laughs> so the pot would start at the back of the ship and then make its way to us. And by the time it got its way to us, I mean, it had a reasonable amount of food, but we needed, I don't know, three, 4,000 calories a day minimum. Yeah, but yeah. Because we're freezing. And <laughs> we'd always, always send the pot back to the cook going, it's not enough food. We need more food. <laughs> and then we get a message back saying, well, you've had as much as everybody else. And we're like, no, we need more food. You know, we're really cold up here. We're doing more work. And then eventually they started sending extra food up for the foreskip. But there was always a slight tinge of resentment oh, with, yeah, the food, well, with the extra food that we I'll, got. I'll, never, I'll have to tell a story with Alex. I'll interview Alex one of these days. But we were, we were yeah, the, the middle part of the ship was sure we were invading their sleeping space. And we were, you know, it's true. Yeah, whatever. But, uh, but I, the cool part about the forward part of the ship, my favorite part, I think, was... It was the only place on the boat you could get away from everybody. So when you were on bow watch, what I, I do is I kind of, you know, I put in my, I had, a, I had an iPod, iPod or, what, yeah, iPod, I think they called it. So I'd, I'd listen to some music, not loud enough that you couldn't hear things, but, but you know, loud enough that it could kind of blot out casual conversation or whatever. And, and it was just, you were alone. That, that was it. Like, I remember that was the coolest feeling. It was like, this is my one time on the boat where you can actually be alone while it's underway. And then the other time, oh, I remember the time too, when we were sailing and it was the moment where it was the closest I knew I would ever come in my life to be on a Viking warship with that many people. And are you talking about invading the Navy SEAL base? No, no, not at all. <laughs> though we, we did that too. But no, we did. We got invited to the Navy SEAL base by Bo, which was awesome. Thank you, Bo. And the captain did make us put down all the weapons before we docked. Yes, yes. That's probably a good idea. Which I still regret. Versus modern Navy SEALs. Uh, there's still much of a chance. Anyway, uh, no, it was... We were sailing across... This was the North Sea, and we were going from Lowestoft, England, to the Netherlands... And it was at night, and a squall came through. I, I think it was then. Gosh, I'm, I mean, I'm blanking. I could have been the northern journey. I remember that trip being really easy and not being any squalls. When did but... the squall come through? It must have been going to Denmark then. My mistake. No. It's hard. It's hard to remember sometimes. But yeah, that was easy but fast. I remember it was a fast trip. Mm-hmm. So I think it was the northern one because we did get a couple of rain things. And the... But but it was at night, and you still had all the running lights, and you had you know, they were up above. They were on top of the mast because we were a sailing boat, right? And I remember you could see lights ashore. You could see lights from other vessels. You, you, you see pretty far out on the water. And then the squall came through. And all I saw was, you know, the, our green running light kind of lit up the boat a little bit. Which obviously, historically, they wouldn't have. But a moon would have done the same thing. So I was like, that's as close as it's ever going to get. I saw no other lights except the boat lit up by this kind of surreal greenish light. So as, as close as it's going to get to what? 
to being in Viking times. Oh. To sailing on a Viking oh, ship in Viking okay. times and not have so the, the outside in the middle influence. of the Pacific with no lights because we didn't have any. Well, oh, sorry, let me correct that. A warship, okay. like like a Viking warship, that specific thing. Like like yes, I could be on a Viking ship sailing across to mm-hmm. Greenland or something, and yeah, you you would get a very yeah. very good impression. But but in that case, it's like that was as close as I was going to get on that particular warship, mm. and I I don't know, I I kind of doubt. I mean, you can't. You're, you're not going to sail without lights on a boat that big. So, in modern times. Hmm. Anyhow. I, was, I would well, dispute that. Well, okay, but, okay. Or, well, let's talk about this. Or, but, I mean, guy is only a tiny bit But the point is, the, you're still going to be seeing lights if you're going anywhere of a historic in Viking, that area. Viking warship yeah, would have sure, gone. Sure. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, unless you're talking about America. Debatable. But they but, didn't yeah. go on a warship like that. They would no, not. No, they would yeah, not. They didn't go on a, yeah. No, they would never have gone there, on a warship. There'd be no, no point. Yeah. So, so in that sense, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking from a LARPA's reenactments perspective. No, I'm talking from an historical understanding perspective. Experience. Why do you need the Viking ship underneath you to get that experience? No. Oh, Jamie, we're talking apples and oranges. I'm not talking about the experience of being out at sea without any lights yeah. and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about specifically being on a Viking ship and experiencing that moment. It's kind of like when, when I went to a Civil War reenactment. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a, a big thing in America. Yeah. We do the you know the North versus South, Confederates versus the or, or the Union versus Confederates. Yeah, you should have just stayed with the king and you wouldn't have had these problems. God dang it. You know the British came that close to supporting the South. Anyway, the point, which I think... Uh, I'm not even going there. All right, so the point... Don't tell me that outside of the podcast, because I didn't know about that. I, I believe that's the case, but 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 it was more... Does that just cause trouble? Well, no. They, well, the only reason they did it was they didn't want... Yeah. They, they were... The British were heavily against slavery. Yeah, so massively anti-slavery. So yeah. how they could come I, to supporting the South, I don't know. But we're politi- Politics are weird, but... But in the anyway, end, back on back anyway, on track. God, we are getting into it. All right, so yeah. I was in I was in this reenactment, and I remember we were walking through the camp at night, and the the guy who had invited me stopped me. He's like, "Stop, mm-hmm. Johan, stop." He said, "Look, look at that." And I looked up. You know, I saw the saw the camp, and it was night, and that was it. I saw the camp at night. Everything was lit up. He's like that. Right there is as close as you're ever going to get to what it looked like in the Civil War. Ever. Right there. Because, and I realized what he was saying was there were only candles or lanterns lit. There was no other light source except for that. It was the tents, you know, replicas of the tents they would have used. The people you saw walking around were in, in uniform. It was, it was as close as I was ever going to get to actually being back in that time. And it, it, it was so nice to get that pause and just savor that moment. And, and that's how I felt about the, of course, that Civil War post-dates the Viking ship. But that's how I felt in that moment was, I can't see any of the outside lights. I can't see the boats and the land. All I see is just the squall and people huddling. And it's, it's as close to the, that moment that I was going to get, where this is as close to a Viking ship and a squall I'm, you know, I'm going to get. So for me, that's what was, I mean. For me, it was the smell. I just loved the smell of that mm. ship. That was something else. Pine tar. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, I love the way it moved. Yeah, I love that ship. Yeah. It was a heck of a journey. I love mm. the crew. God, that was fun. There's some I, crazy I, people. We, I would like to do it again. Yeah. For sure. If the ship will do that sometime, I'd like to do that again. 
when we were on the Irish Sea, I had one of my more embarrassing moments in my life, I think, but it's hilarious. Um, we're sitting there and we're crossing the Irish Sea and you know, one of the crew members was like, whales. I see whales. I was like, whoa, no way. So I get up. I'm looking. I don't see any whales. I'm like, where? They're like, there. There you hunt. They're pointing. I'm looking. I'm looking really hard. I'm like, I don't see whales. And they're like, right there, Johan. And so finally, I'm like, I don't see any effing tails or, you know, we're already explicit. I don't see any fucking tails or any fucking sp like, spouts or what are you people talking about? And they're like, there, Johan, the country, whales. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I see it now. <laughs> I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Oh, man. And then you kept saying, you said, because you, you have this funny accent, Jamie. I don't know if you knew this, but but you're sitting there and you're like, yo, I'm going to Tolkien. You, like, I heard Tolkien. Going to what? Torque or whatever. Torquay. Yeah, yeah, you said that, but it sounded like Tolkien. Torquay. Yeah, you said Torquay, but I heard yeah. Tolkien. So I'm like, where? And I'm like, Lord of the Rings? Like, what are you talking to about? To be fair, at this point, we've been at sea for three days and That's we true. haven't had any sleep for three days because this is the Irish crossing. We've all either got hypothermia or we're close to hypothermia. We haven't slept. <laughs> We've been wet and cold and tired. You're going to hear things. God, it was great. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So so we get to Torque and they put us in... Torquay. They put us in a Torquay. car park. Ireland looked after us. Yeah. Denmark looked after us. First stop in England. Oh, you can get in a car park. So the car park was this underground garage type, like a yeah. garage building. And we were in some sort of We large... had dinner with the mayor in Ireland with silver... <laughs> cutlery we did oh and then, and then come we, to england no you can get in the freaking car park it's true and so they put us all in this room in the the underground garage and it was the i mean we're, and we're jam-packed we're used to being on the boat so you're 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 spooning with everyone you're, you're like you're used to having a very small space so we're crammed in there like sardines and i'll never forget we're all lying down and stuff we have our beards and like all these wools and you know we look really tired and disheveled and people are exhausted and they're sleeping and stuff and the, these these I don't know if they were local or tourists or what, but they were definitely English. And they, they, they opened the door and this, it was a group of them. And this lady goes, oh, it was like, like middle-aged or older lady. She's like, oh my, the poor people. This is where the poor people sleep. And just boom, slammed the door. And we just roared. We were all laughing so hard. Oh my God. The poor people. That's what it became. But it was crazy because when we got to Denmark, like, like, the best, the best scene. If you ever want to see what it felt like, if you ever want to get a, a hint of it, we. If you ever seen Dust Boat, which is the greatest U-boat movie of all time, hands down. Period. Don't you'll never watch an American U-boat movie after you see Dust Boat. Best German war movie in, in classic sense. And there's a scene where they go to Spain, and for a little history, folks, if you, in case you didn't know, Spain, Spain was pretty sympathetic to the Nazis. And so they had the U-boat shows up in Spain and they're getting torpedoes, they're getting a few extra, you know, some supplies getting reprovisioned. Well, it goes from this dingy, dank, horrible U-boat to opulence. I think they're on another vessel, but it's like pure opulence. And they have this spread of food and lights and everything is just, the juxtaposition is astounding. And so we, on the, and, and it's a really cool scene. And we and we on the Viking ship, we get off this boat and we're covered in salt and like like dirty. I haven't showered for days. And it's just like we look bearded, miserable, smelly. 
And there's the provincial. I mean, there's like oysters the, and champagne. Oysters and champagne. It was surreal. And we're sitting there like just holding champagne glasses with oysters. We're looking at each other. I didn't like, like the oysters, but I sure did enjoy the champagne. And they didn't provide enough of it. It was surreal. It was so crazy. We're we're <laughs> we're chumming with dignitaries <laughs> dressed in our fight like our work clothes. It was uh, it was one of the cooler cooler things I've ever done for sure. Yeah. My most embarrassing moment on the trip was crossing, going past the White Cliffs of Dover. Folks that haven't listened, by the way, you really need to listen to the Valentine episode. I think it's episode 17. Uh, we talk about a lot of embarrassing stories there. So this is going to be really good. And no, it's, it's really not that good. But for <laughs> me, it was mortifying. So I was listening to something, some music on my, on my phone, which was, I think, the first iPhone. I was way ahead of my time. Hmm. Um, and I received a phone call from my friend, somehow managed to get signal off the cliffs of Dover, and he was calling me, and I thought I was just hearing him ring through my ears. But in fact, it was ringing through my phone as well. And this is sometime around, I don't know, near midnight, and my phone is just going, ring, ring, and I don't want to answer it because I don't want to disturb people and talk. So I just let it ring out. And it's going, ring, 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 ring. And then Johan comes up to me and goes, will you shut that fucking phone off? <laughs> People are trying to sleep here. And I, I still feel bad about that to this, to this day. Oh, oh, Jamie, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It should have been so harsh. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, no, it's fair. You know, yeah. there's a strict watch system. And when you're sleeping, you're sleeping. And when you're awake, you're awake. God, there it's was completely a... fair. Oh man! Now, now we're this is true story story swapping, folks. This is like this is real sailor stuff. So I'll I'll never forget when um, I I was we were, I forget which part of the journey it was, but it was raining and I was under the because so what you did on the Viking ship they they lay down the oars and stuff, but uh, so you 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 lay down the oars fore and aft, and then you had little sleeping pads kind of going like foam sleeping pads going athwart ships, so that's sideways perpendicular to the boat. And then you had, that's it. You slept on that and you had a wool blanket and then they put waterproof canvas over you. So it, it sounds great. It wasn't great. It was it was really cold. But the it, idea, was, it was great. It, it was better than nothing. You got to spoon up with people every single time. That's true. Jamie and I spooned a lot. It's absolutely true. <laughs> so the point is, oh yeah, that was, you get really close with your shipmates. Let me tell you, when like you depend on them for your there, life. There are people on that ship that I haven't seen since that voyage. And if I suddenly saw them, we'd be in some friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. So they give you this waterproof canvas. And, and the idea was if you were in a sleeping bag and went overboard, you just, you're probably never going to get out of your sleeping bag. So that's why, that's why that was. But the I remember I was sitting there underneath you know, the canvas and, and I the way it worked, you had to get as much weight aft as possible. So but there were a couple people on the forward part of the ship that were allowed to sleep between the, the bottos, which is that big log around there and, and like the bow. And so I was there with Cigna and we're sleeping or we weren't sleeping. We were just resting and then we were going to sleep. But hey, wasn't it all three of us? Because wasn't I lying against the back? Cigna was lying in between my legs and you were lying in between Cigna's legs. No, that's a different time. I'm talking about okay. the time, though that happened too. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the time that um, we, because she and I were, were, were we, we were side by side. I mean, we were in separate compartments, like literally, but but we were covered by the same canvas. And so 
she just was telling me about the wonders of Norway and like, oh, there's, you know, these all these amazing things about Norway. And I'm hearing the pitter patter of rain on the canvas and just thinking like, I mean, this is, I'm in heaven. And she had a very beautiful melodic voice. I mean, she mm-hmm. had a laugh that sounded like a song and, and this wonderful, beautiful melodic voice. Just, just, I was falling asleep. I mean, I was literally almost asleep. All of a sudden, canvas ripped off. Blah, 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 in Danish with a guy pointing after, like, I know, and rain in my face, and pop, pop, pop. I'm like, oh, crap. And so I get up, and I'm racing aft with everybody else. But before I did that, I stood up, and I'm just like, oh, I'll just put my South, because I had a Southwestern hat. And, like, this hat was, like, one of a kind, hard to come across. So I'll just put my hat on, and it'll be fine. I put my hat on without tying the clasp. It flies off my head. I reach out and just grasp it with like an inch to spare on this like foot and a half of, of you know, like like leather stuff that you tie it with. And I was like, like literally with an inch to spare. I'm like, whoa, that was awesome. And then just like put the hat on my head and running after the ha- holding the hat onto my head. And then I'm sitting there like shaking with everybody else. And so it went from me like the greatest moment to just like, I hate life. And then I remember Tom, uh, oh, uh, senior editor of Wooden Boat Magazine, Tom, Mr. Tom, Tom Jackson. Cunliffe. Tom Jackson. Cunliffe. No, Tom Jackson. Mr. Who's Tom, Tom Cunliffe, Jackson. Okay. I don't know, Jim. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, it's Mr. Tom Jackson, the only other American on board. He and I had quite the bond, let me tell you. And he's like, well, Johan, it could be... Oh, no, it wasn't, that wasn't that time. He had an expression for everything. Like He'd say, well, Johan, it could be worse. And I was like, what the heck do you mean? He's like, it could be raining. Well, at that point, it was raining. <laughs> so his expression, he said, Johan, anybody... I say, Mark Twain once said, anybody that would go to sea for pleasure would go to hell for vacation. <laughs> it was something like that. <laughs> that is definitely true. And that is why I hate sailing. <laughs> Genuinely, I, I'm not into sailing at all. If if I had the opportunity to go on the Viking ship again, I would do that. But I wouldn't count that really as sailing. That's something else. So I'd definitely go on the Viking ship again. Open boat, Viking ship, would definitely do that again. But certainly sailing on any yacht, I would definitely wouldn't do I would go on a tall ship if it was a proper one, proper sails, not one that motors around everywhere, but one that had proper sails, like a, you know, a ship of the line. I would definitely go on that. Yeah. Something like the Hermione. Just even to see the working of it. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, I would definitely do that. But but otherwise, I'm I'm done with the sea. So, is it uh, not not to answer why you're done with the sea, but for for those ships that you mentioned, the Viking ship, mm-hmm. the Hermione, the they're different. <laughs> they're different. Is it? So my question to you, which you asked me earlier, yeah. is it the role playing? Is it the? No. Is it the history? History? No. Is it just what it's is just it? Just the ships. They're just different ships. It's. I would say the, the smell is the main thing. That smell of tar is crucial. Because a that stops me from being seasick. So I get terribly seasick normally. Never got seasick on the Viking ship once, and mm. I put a lot of that down to the smell of tar. I didn't get seasick on the Mirwold, but we never went into any weather, so it doesn't count. I don't know. There's just something about those ships that maybe it's rebelling against my past and <laughs> so on. But yeah, I would definitely go on another trip on the Viking ship and I would go on any tall ship like the, um, what's the word? The, the Swedish one with that fantastic woman captain. That one, I would go on that one. You know, the, not the Gothenburg. No, no, it's great. It's got these huge castles fore and aft, and then you oh, steer it the from the Vasa. Yeah, I'd go on that one. The Vasa sank within 
it sank within okay, minutes. Okay, not that one. The yeah. one, the the one that we the Vaza sank within minutes. Not, okay, of not that one. Voyage, the one that, <laughs> the one that we, we we ran into it in Philadelphia, on the Mirrorworld. Oh, uh, oh god. Um, really, they looked brand spanking new. It had this huge fore and aft castle. And the steering, the helm station was where the helmsman couldn't see what they were doing. Oh, the Calmar Nickel. That one. Yeah. yeah okay. I'd go on that one in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Calmar Nickel's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want to know, like, yeah. the Calmar Nickel was, was perfect because because basically that was the one. Yeah. If, if, if you've been on an 18th century square rigger mm. and a schooner and a Viking ship and the Calmar Nickel, I mean, you pretty much cover the, like, I don't want to say you cover the gambit, but like. Nothing beyond that. Nothing's going to really surprise you. Like Latin rigs, maybe maybe you need to sail on a Latin rig, but but it won't surprise you. Yeah. You know, but yeah, some of that rigging did surprise me. Where I was like, what? Whoa! What? What are these? And it's easy. Like like once you've sailed enough, you know. Okay, crow's feet. Okay, I see what that does. That's called a crow's foot. Okay, great. That's easy. You know, they had this cute little sprit topsail. Oh my god, it was adorable little sail. So yeah, but the cool part about that ship for me as captain, later on becoming captain, was I you have to rely on a helms person that's you a volunteer. You had captain on the Nickel? No, I was not. I was second mate. Okay. But those captains, uh, Lauren Morgan and, and Sharon Downs, uh, excellent captains and very, very good at training. Hmm. And they, so they taught me quite a bit. They, they, I, my, my boat handling definitely improved my, my understanding of, you know, and just simply having a boat where, because the way it works on Calmer Nickel, you're on that after castle area, you have the, the throttles up there, but you have zero control over your rudder. And mm-hmm. so you're calling down commands. Down throttles? The, you mean the engine controls? Engine controls. Yeah. Okay. Thr- yeah. The throttle. And so you know, gear shift and throttle. Yeah. And so, but they had two engines. So you had like Why four, do four tall ships have engines all the time? Well, Jamie. It makes me, I, Jamie, they shouldn't have any, the, the Viking ship didn't have engines. It was fine. Well, Jamie. Why do all these tall ships have engines? If you recall, when we were on the AJ Mirold <laughs> and yeah. um, I shut off the engine to, which is standard procedure, by the way, folks, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, most of these engines are pretty reliable. Unfortunately, the one piece of equipment we hadn't changed in that engine room prior to it sailing after its repower was the starter battery for the main engine. And so, and we obviously should have changed it because, or got bought a new one because I turned off the engine, which is pretty standard on a boat where you like, you know, because you want quiet so kids can kind of hear what it sounded like historically and people can be heard. And so we're, and it saves fuel and all that, yada, yada, yada. So I turned off the engine for that reason. And then we go to, it's time to go dock, right? And so I turn on the engine, nothing. Like, Jay, oh. I said to the engineer, like, get down there, figure this out. And then, but, but I didn't say it like that, obviously. I'm like, Jay, uh, would you mind checking out the engine to see if it'll work? And you were on shore, right? You were yeah, on, no, Liz yeah. and I were, we had our day off. Yeah, we were chilling in the kombucha bar, Liz's great. choice, not mine. I didn't need a small boat. Yeah, you guys had that. And, so, and, and we had the small boat. Yeah, and so I told dock. Josh, folks, you know, I heard Josh, episode five, Josh Gornavacci, the survivor, he was on board. And so I'm like, hey, Josh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I forget how I put it. I was like, can you ready the anchor? And so he just casually went forward. All like, sensible decisions to make if you if you feel like you're in trouble. Yes. But first thing you ought to do is think about the anchor. Think about the anchor. Ready the anchor. Like we had we had a, I, th- I think, I can't remember if I reset the sail or if we had the sail. I think I, we probably still had the sail up because I was just starting it out. It was on that exceptionally boat. light winds that day. It was anyway, exceptionally light winds. 
So I th- so we so we had sail power, you know, which would have lasted us for a little bit, and then yeah, had we not started the engine, we would need the anchor at some point. Uh, but but he wasn't moving very fast at all. I'm like, uh, you know, so later on, I was like, Josh, like, like, he's like, I thought you just needed the anchor. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no. I need. If I anchor. call for the anchor on a sail, <laughs> it means I need it now. So I obviously didn't make that clear enough, but I also don't want to panic passengers. It's it's, it's uh, you know we talk a fine balancing act. You you learn from your mistakes. You learn how to communicate yeah. the, with the crew discre- discreetly. By the way, folks, if you need to get in that situation, I recommend planning for that in advance say this is if i say ready the anchor now in a calm voice it means ready the anchor now <laughs> you know so so anyhow um so i called you up i radio or phone whatever it was you telephoned liz Telephone we're liz. relaxing yeah. on our day off in this kombucha <laughs> bar uh just chilling and then liz goes oh is he on calling on what he wants and i'm like i need you now so this- so i get up from the kombucha bar I leg it out the door, I slam the door open, leave Liz in there to pay for everything, and I hightail it down the down the street to Very the good. to the to the boat, which is a reasonable way away, so I'm really running. So Jamie gets his small boat, he gets out, and, uh, and we're sailing at this point, obviously. We have the anchor ready. And I have to I have to make a one eighty degree turn and get the boat back on the dock, uh, docking against the current. Thank God it was a light current. It was in a river. It wasn't too bad, and it was light winds. So this was all pretty reasonable. Yeah. So so I got you. Well, you were you were behind. I can't remember. Did I put you on the the stern first, or did I get you on the bow? You put me on the stern. I put you on the stern. Yeah. Okay. So so I first. I think so. Because then I did I get you on the bow eventually. I can't remember. Right, I must have had you on the bow. Because we had steerage. We, we, okay. we're, we're going down. We're, you might have put me on the bow first. Yeah. So, so we're sailing down the river. And I needed to turn the boat. So that was the big one, really. Was I put you on the bow. And I like pushed three. And the boat started turning. And it wasn't turning quite as fast as I'd hoped. But but we made it through. Thank goodness. For and the re- for the record, I had great fun on the Mirwald. Because <laughs> I was given a tiny, tiny, tiny little inflatable boat. And it had, what was it, a 20 horsepower or a 30 horsepower engine on the back of it? 10? It was a okay, ten. but it was a tiny boat. So it really went like shit off a shovel. It, it was great fun. Yeah, and it was enough to get that bow around, thank God. And then um, we're, we're bound to the current at that point, and so I had you shift to the stern, push you know, push on our transom. I, I forget. I, mean, I had you shifting between three and one. So full 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 throttle to very little throttle. But, um, and then I prepped the crew. I can't remember. I was just having a pleasant chat with you. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I wasn't worried. I'm like, not captain. Not my responsibility. As, my day off. Well, look at it from my perspective. Like, we're on a river. There's no yeah. traffic. There were no tugboats coming down. There were no big no. cargo ships. So, as long as your engine didn't go out, we were fine. Yeah. 100%. If your engine did go out, what do I do? I anchor the boat. I get some other help. It's not the end of the world. You know, I, I let people know so the freaking cargo ship doesn't run me down. You know, like, like you, yeah, I mean, we, we, we would dealt with the problem as it came, but, but there was no need to panic at that point. So, yeah, so you're pushing me. So as long as your engine holds out, we're good to go. And then I prepped the crew. I said, crew, come, come aft, because I could tell they were a little nervous. I'm like, guys, look at the speed we're going right now. I've done this type of docking. Like, yeah, we don't have an engine, but we're being pushed perfectly. This is the perfect speed. We are against the current. I have full control of this vessel. I've done dockings like this hundreds of times. Not a big deal. And they're like, okay, cool. So we just docked the boat. The passengers never knew. I don't think they, they, they didn't. Know. I don't think they did. They're like, yeah, they were fine. So bye. <laughs> and then we found out it was a starter battery. We fixed the starter battery and, and uh, got a new one. So, but, sir. That's why we have engines on our freaking tall ships on rivers and near coastal traffic. Yeah, on rivers, I'll grant you that. 
Crossing a sea, yeah, I get it. You don't need yeah. one, but on a trade win, you probably wouldn't need one. But yeah. that's why. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. And on the Viking ship, we had oars. We had oars. So that's true. We always had that option. We could it's always true. get our oars. Yeah, remember snapping um, one of those in half. Like, yeah. Now I've got a fantastic picture of you holding up your snap tool. I should have had everybody carve their names into that. I that's my biggest regret for me. You know, still ship. got that all? No. I if if I had thought about it, I would have got everybody to carve their name and I'd I'd have that it'd be yeah, right here on the wall. Should be. It'd be right there as a trophy. No, I they, well Have they, you got the picture that I took? Oh yeah. yeah, it's a great okay. picture, yeah. yeah. But they told me because there it was like me and three other people rowing and we were trying to get the bow around, something like that. And so they told me that the You were just a big muscular guy you had. Oh, thank you, Jerry. But, but unbeknownst to me, no, it wasn't that. Unbeknownst to me, the other two people yeah, were slacking. Old. They were slacking. And I was like rowing as hard as I could already. Like, you know, I was, as in with good form. And like, row harder, row harder. I'm like, I am rowing. Like, I'm rowing as hard as I can. <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and they kept yelling, not at me. It turns out they were yelling at the other two yeah. people. And so I'm like, screw it. Fine. So these are these oars are made of wood so you have to kind of dig in and then give it a gradual but very strong pull right so you're you're increasing your speed very quickly but you're not digging it in and so i was like fine screw it just boom snap like just did (laughs) zero to 60 as fast as possible and snap that oar right in half and uh yeah it sucked (laughs) so it's like but but it was really cool because like heard the snap or broke brought it in you know Bam, new oar, and like within seconds, there's rowing again. Go back to work, bitch. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's how it was. So it was pretty cool. They didn't break any ribs, thankfully. Oh, I love that trip. Yeah. Uh, can I talk about the Lapita voyage a bit? Please. Because that was quite quite similar to the Viking ship. Yeah, please. So the Lapita voyage happened, I can't remember how old I was. Um, I was really into my karate at the time, because I remember we started out the trip in, oh gosh, I think... Philippines and I ended up it was so weird I was like I, I want to go and do some karate training and I asked I asked all the locals around is there anybody that does karate and I got this like number of this weird Hawaiian guy that did karate <laughs> and I had to get like a on the back of a motorbike to go and visit him or so on turns out he he'd done like the direction for a bunch of the really old ninja movies mm. he was super hardcore and he'd somehow ended up in the Philippines. And I did a bunch of training with him for a couple of weeks. He was weird, but a nice guy. Oh, sorry, I've got this wrong. This was this was on a on a trip whilst they were building the boats and we're going to visit them. But then later on, my parents I joined them later on the trip. They sailed the first couple of thousand miles and I only joined for the last thousand miles. So they'd found when I when I was sailing with them back as a kid, we'd been to some to this very remote island called Tikapia. So it's I think four hundred miles from the nearest other landmass and the only contact it has with the outside world is is one cargo ship that comes sort of once every two months, something like that. And they still had some old canoes in that island that were like a hundred years old from from the time period before everything changed. And my mum took a bunch of measurements from the boat. And then my parents, when they went home, went and designed a whole form that was basically an exact replica of those measurements with, with the same rig that they had. So it was, it was a proper replica rather than what my parents had done before, which was more of a their interpretation of they'd, they'd seen what had happened and they 
gone, okay, well, this is how we can make it work really well and we're going to change this and this and this. But this was a proper replica. And so my mum had this open heart surgery and she had a lot of drugs in hospital. And while she was on a lot of drugs, she had this weird hallucination thing that she wanted to build this replica ship of the measurements that she'd taken from that boat. This is many years later. And she wanted to sail it to the island and then like show it to them or whatever. Um, and then somehow that then transformed into being like an archaeological research study. So they were studying the migration pat patterns of ancient Pacific people by taking DNA samples from things they brought. So chickens, rats, and pigs, I think. But they didn't do it from humans because that would have required way too much paperwork to get consent from everybody involved. So they did it from the things that people brought with them. Interesting. Um, so we sailed... Well, I I hadn't I didn't join them at this point, but the, the the trip sailed from the Philippines all the way to Anuta and Tikapia. So that we built two boats. Yeah. Um, because these two islands are basically sister islands. They're only like a hundred miles from each other, and but then they are four five hundred miles or whatever from the nearest other landmass, and they're essentially as close to uncontacted as you can get. So they basically still have all of their traditions that they always did. Um, with very limited contact with the outside world. So they still have some of their ancient sailing boats. So uh, we built these boats and we did this voyage. I joined them, I don't know, two thirds of the way through or something. So there's only another thousand miles to go uh, because I was working at the time or something. I can't remember. So we've got, essentially there's space for, I think, two people to sleep in the hulls. And then the rest of it is either you hot bunk or you sleep on deck. So it's it's kind of another open boat thing like the Viking ship. And then the galley was just, there was like a tiny box on deck about four foot by two foot. And then inside it, there was a, like a small Primus paraffin stove or what have you. And then when I joined the ship, I became the cook because I like cooking and, and what have you. And I was determined to have hot meals for the crew every day, all the time, lunch and dinner, no matter what. And I remember ending up like being under a tarp and the boat's going all over the place and there's water going all over me and I'm like cooking on this little paraffin stove. But I, I achieved it. I had hot meals every day, two days, well, at least one day, no matter what. Um, and then we would hot bunk in the holes to, to, to go and sleep. And then for the last part of the voyage, we decided we wanted to do it without modern navigation. So my mum... My dad left, unfortunately he'd got, my dad unfortunately got cancer at this point. This was like his last big voyage. And he was, I don't know, late 80s and he'd got cancer and he had to leave the ship. So it was me and my mum and there were some local Polynesians uh, on the boat and it was just, it was just us. And my mum decided she wanted to do the navigation the traditional way. So she blanked off all the instruments and was like, okay, we're sailing by the, by the sun and the stars and the waves and the wind and so we we sailed the last uh whatever it was 400 miles or whatever to um uh, so our boat was going to anuta and the other boat was going to tikapia two sister islands both fairly uncontacted but tikapia is more known than anuta we were going to anuta the other boat was going to tikapia and then as we got close to the island the, the a bird suddenly appeared which is one of the signs 
when you get close to land. Birds suddenly appeared, landed on the deck, and one of the Polynesians, he was actually from... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think he was from Anuta. He might have been from Tikapia. I don't know. I think he was from Anuta. Uh, Carlson, he was called. Really, really great guy. Um, I'm sorry, Carlson, if I've got your place of origin wrong. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he... Uh, Somehow he managed to pick up the bird, and he was. I've got I've got a photograph of him with, with with the bird or what have you. There was like a rainbow in the background. It was absolutely gorgeous. So we knew there was land coming soon. So we knew the navigation was fairly right. And uh, my mum was keeping track of the GPS, but without like plotting on the chart. She, so she would look at the coordinates and then write write the coordinates down, but she wouldn't plot on the chart, so she didn't know where she was. But we ended up at Anuta. Um, we got there. We arrived on the island and then the entire island came out to greet us and we rode the ship up onto the beach and they came out, they picked us up, carried us up the beach, dropped us, <laughs> as you do. Um, wow. And, you know, we, we spent a couple of weeks there and, you know, we, we went around to everybody and the, the people were absolutely lovely and, you know, we went and visited everybody and we had food. And then I remember on the on the last day, well, they had they had bad ringworm on that island because somehow some missionaries had got there. They still had their religion, sort of, but also missionaries had sort of corrupted them. And there was some serious ringworm on the island, but we had some medication, so we we gave that to them. And did you tell them to stop wearing their clothing? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, yeah. Just go back. Well, to well, we before. showed up all naked. <laughs> so you know we're there on there, but oh my god! So we got there, and they have all of their traditional boats. And they've got them under palm leaves. They're storing them for when they need them. And there was a boat there from like 1840 or something. How do you know this? Through dendrochronology? Because they they told us. Oh, they told you. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so wow. they're like, this boat has been here for X amount of years before the white man came. Wow. Because they'd only been like, they hadn't known white people for very long at all. Wow. Um, so and they had cool. one boat that they'd kept. That yeah. was their that was the that island's ocean going boat and it was still kept under the palm leaves. This oh. is we're keeping this for emergencies. How big was it? It wasn't huge. I don't know, it was like forty foot or something. Wow, that's incredible. But that was their that was that island's ocean going canoe and it was according to them, I know, eighteen you'd have to ask my mum, but I think it was like eighteen fifty, eighteen forties, that sort of age gorgeous boat yeah and well i mean we'd got the design from their sister island tikapia and it basically looked the same as the as the boat that we brought them it was essentially the same so yeah that was incredible to to look at that and get the the, the proper history there because so many of them were destroyed by the missionaries and so on but these two islands the missionaries had never properly got to them so we got we got to the island uh, and they carried the boat up onto the beach and we went around and, you know, so on. And then we were there for a couple of weeks. And then I remember at the end of it, they so we gave them the boat. So the boat is their design. And um, at the end of the voyage, we're like, okay, we want you to keep the boat. Gaia. To... No, 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 not Gaia. The, the these, these, so these two boats are... So Gaia yeah, is... I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Gaia is a mishmash between modern technologies and ancient Polynesian this technologies. This is the replica. This is an actual replica with an actual replica rig. The only difference is instead of it being a dugout canoe, so you take a tree trunk and you take an adze and you carve it. It's made of plywood and epoxy. Okay. But it's an exact replica of 
what they had on Tikapia, which is the sister island of one of the other boats went to Tikapia. The island, the boat that we was on went to Anuta, which is the sister island of Tikapia, and they had a boat on that island which was very similar. Are they, are these traditional vessels? Are they are they carved out? Like how how do they do? Are, the 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 keel is essentially carved out of a log, and then the upper part of it is planks that are stitched on. Okay. Okay, got it. Uh, to make and, it bigger. And over. As yeah, well? yeah, they so have it's a deck. fully covered. Oh, yeah. It's deck. Okay. Yeah, got it. Well, I mean, partially deck, partially not deck, but yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot. I imagine there's a lot of bailing involved. Now, your mother, you, you described it that she had a hallucination. And you said you had an hallucination of dolphins and all that, but what? Well, on the Viking ship. You said oh yeah, you well saw... that's because I hadn't slept for two days. Okay, well I yeah. I didn't. I, yeah. I wasn't seeing things. I might have been hearing yeah. things because of Tolkien or whatever. But yeah. but uh, um, but you said she had a a, a hallucination. Yeah, yeah. So she had, so she was in hospital for an open heart surgery, and she was on a lot of drugs. Right, and she just. Somehow, while she was in hospital, she got this immense clarity of vision. She's like, this is what we get. Because we'd sailed with Gaia to Tikapia, not to Anuta, but to Tikapia, which is Anuta's sister island. And we'd been welcomed there by the by the tribe. And, you know, I had great memories of the chief daddy. And I, I remember he came to the boat and we came to his hut and so on. And I remember being in his hut at the at, right before we were about to leave and just in lamplight and looking at him and I just had this flash of insight that this is the last time I'm ever going to see you and I don't know how old I was nine, ten, eight, something like that but I just had this clarity of vision I'm never and I just really liked him for some reason this this really old Tikopian guy and um, he was just sat there eating his I mean he's an old guy he's just sat there eating his dinner because you know he's like bye um, eating his dinner I just I was like I'm never going to see you again and then you know we got back on our boat and we sailed off and then a few years later I heard that he died um, if you're talking about weird stuff but you, um, yeah it's funny Jamie because I know you're I think you're very skeptical or at least you say you are I am so skeptical I am a 100% but, atheist and yet you're surrounded by stuff that I mean quite frankly I mean, the, yeah, the closest I came or have mm. come, I should say, yeah. is um, I was I was visiting Japan again. It had been ten years, mm. and um, I was visiting a family that I, I I dated their daughter, one of their daughters, and they treated me like a king. I mean, it was incredible. You know, I'd go to their they had a restaurant that was part of the house, and it was this very traditional Japanese food, very traditional. Everything was traditional out in the country. They they brought stuff from their garden to cook, you know, for their food. It was, it was incredible. And, um, and by that point in time, you know, the daughter hadn't heard from in years. Uh, they had another daughter who was still there, but the mom had died. The dad was, he couldn't, you know, he could barely stand. And, but I never, I never got a vision or what you're describing where you had a feeling like, I'm not going to see this person again. I didn't get that Hmm. because and I don't know why, but he might have gotten it because we sat there, we chatted for probably about an hour and a half. This is all in Japanese. And my Japanese was, you know, I hadn't spoken in 10 years. He came back. By this point in time, after two weeks, it 
it's weird. Like my brain just all of a sudden I could speak Japanese again. <laughs> you know, I can feel, <laughs> I can like feel the connections. I'm like, I actually don't know what I'm saying right now, but I know it's a hundred percent correct. Cause I just, mm-hmm. that's how my brain works and my, my muscle memory works. But, um, so we, I think we spoke for about an hour and a half and my brain filled up. I was done. I was tired. I was like, I can't understand anything more. And so I said, Oh, thank you for, you know, he, he made us a meal. This old man, mm-hmm. like barely stand made us a meal again. And we and just it was so generous, and we sat down, and, and and so I said, you know, I'm tired. We need to go, and he said, no, I'm enjoying this. You need to stay. Hmm. And what do you say? I mean, you're in Japan. You never say no, and, and I wasn't about to say no. Like he just said, you need to stay, and we're gonna talk more. And he just talked, and I don't remember what we talked about at all, but we were there in that moment for a long time, and and when we left. I mean, it wasn't a vision. That's the thing. I don't get that. I, I just, but I was, we were all upset. Like, you know, and he, he said consciously, he said, oh, because I said, oh, maybe we'll, you know, hopefully we'll see you again. It won't be 10 years. So oh, in 10 years, I'll be in the ground. Flat out, he just said. I'll, I'll be mm-hmm. long gone. And as we were departing, like we were saying goodbye and, and I just, I, I started crying <laughs> and they started crying yeah. and everybody was, and, and like, and I, I got to the car and I was supposed to drive and I just couldn't drive. I gave the keys to, to my wife and I said, you have to drive. I can't drive. And, yeah. and we just said goodbye. And yeah, that probably is the last time, but I think maybe he, the Japanese he are, they're more, they're more in tune with this kind of stuff. They're a little older culture than, than our culture, but I do wonder, maybe he saw something that I didn't. Maybe yeah. he realized something I didn't. And so I just wonder, I don't know. Like, like you're very skeptical. Well, I am skeptical. But you no, see stuff I, that I don't see. You see what I mean? I knew I, I, knew I was never going to see him again. And it was very obvious. And I felt, I cried when we left that island. And I, I still have a, the exact, because I remember, I remember knowing when we said goodbye that I never see him again. And I just took one last look at him through his hut's door. Door, I say door is like tiny, but <laughs> so one last my head through, and you know he's lit, he's backlit by paraffin lamp light, and he's just taking a scoop of whatever food he's eating. He's like hunching, just like a normal person, <laughs> taking a hunch of a scoop of his food, and it's just imprinted in my brain. I remember seeing it and going, "That's the last time I'm ever going to see you." Wow, Daddy, yeah. It was pretty cool. Where were we with this story? We're just telling stories. Okay. So, yeah, Lapita Voyage. So we dropped this boat off on Anuta, not Tikapia, which is where Daddy comes from. Uh, I've never been to Anuta before. And, you know, they're fantastic people. So one weird thing. Fant- and this makes perfect sense from a swimming point of view. Fantastically wide feet. What? Fantastically wide feet. Feet. Feet, correct. So I'm six foot two. Mm. And I put my footprint inside. I've got a photograph of this. If I put my footprint inside one of their footprint, it looks like a, not a child's, but very small. And you have wide feet. I have very wide Your feet. Your feet are wider than mine significantly. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. <laughs> but, and that makes perfect sense for swimming. Huh. So, yeah. So when, when I was a kid on, on um, Tikapia, I went uh, spearfishing with the locals. So I was, I don't know, eight-year-old, ten-year-old kid, whatever. I remember going in the dark because we'd lend them masks. We had masks going spearfishing. It was one of the 
best nights I ever had going fishing for lobsters. And then did the same thing on an Anuta. Uh, and they're such good swimmers. But uh, I was very pleased because they were quite surprised that I could keep up with them. They weren't. They were not expecting that. And That's they, awesome. Um, I don't. Want, I don't want to sound like a big head on the podcast, but mm. they, uh, the locals, specifically said that they were surprised that I could could keep up with them. Yeah. So we spent some time on that island. Got bitten by fire ants, and we left the boats there, and then we headed home. And the only way to get home was we had to wait for the cargo ship, which came every two months or whatever. So we waited on the island for the cargo ship to arrive. Cargo ship arrives. It's a state of a ship. I mean, a real state. I think you showed me video of it. Yep. Yeah. It's a proper state. Yeah, it was. So we, that toilet, holy crap. Oh, yeah, that toilet. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we get we get on the ship and it's only deck sleeping. You can only sleep on deck. So mm. you have to basically, you have to roll your bed roll out on the deck on this cargo ship. And find your spot. And this is the tropics, folk. It, folks. Yeah, it so it's it's hot, warm, humid. Yeah, but yeah. I mean that's a good thing because you're not, you know, right, right, cold or what have you. And uh, my mum is so chilled out at this point because she's not captaining anymore. <laughs> so she's been captaining this whole time, and now she's suddenly not captaining. So she's just blissed out on the deck of this cargo ship, going, "Yeah, whatever." And there's pigs running around and the whole thing stinks of coconut because it's just got coconuts in the hold. And I think it's like a four or five day voyage to the next island that has an airstrip that we have to get to. So we're on this ship, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So the, the, there was, as I was saying, there was two ships. There was Lapita Anuta and Lapita Tikapia. Lapita Tikapia had all the gems on it and Lapita Anuta, which was our ship, had our family on it. The one with all the Germans on it, they were very German. And when they got on this cargo ship, they made their own little German tribe right up at the front. And everything was German. <laughs> you're going to have to explain to some folks what that means. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I've been there for two the years. whole beach towel laying it down thing, that is very true. Mm. So a German, I love the Germans. I think they're, they're absolutely fantastic, but they have their own way about them. <laughs> That is very German, very precise, very ordered. This is how it is, and this is not how it is, and we are going to do it how it is, and this is our place and our way, and we are setting it now. <laughs> but yeah, they're very German. Um, I remember it being in Germany, and the the train... So so the trains... I mean, everybody was orderly. Like People would exit the train, yeah. and then other people would get on the train. It makes sense. It's it does logical. make sense. It doesn't take much effort or discipline. However, there was, for whatever reason, people started jostling. Like, people were trying to get on board while people were trying to get off. And all the... You know, and there was a little chaotic. I think there was just a, a time. It was, it was just time crunch or whatever. And this one fellow, I'll never forget, this guy gets up, you know, he's, he's like leaning out the, you know, you know it was, and he was a normal citizen. This was not like the train conductor or nothing like that. This is a normal guy standing, you know, like sticking his head out the door and he says, he basically said in German, everybody, what are you doing? Are we not all German here? And then instantly, order. Like everybody that was trying to get in stopped, backed up. Let, gave room people that got off it yep. like the, the prussian like that sounds about right the prussian order just like bam you know did that uh military yep. uh, what is it military drill discipline just kicked in i was like wow that would never work in the states but it was impressive to see yeah not gonna lie 
Anyway, so the, the Germans had their own quarters up in the foredeck. That was very definite, definitely their quarters. And then me and my mum and the British BBC cameraman or what have you were in the other one and we were just a lot more chilled. But I remember at some point a bunch of pigs came on and they were running around all over the place. And then I needed to do some cooking. I got chatting and I got friendly with a local crew on the boat and they let me use the, the galley. But like to keep the heat on, you had to keep pushing the button in all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was like cooking with one knee up and then stirring with the other hand. And there was this cheese. So to put this into perspective, this voyage had been going on for a long time. And then the further, the deeper you get into Polynesia, the less foreign by or, or you know european food you can get right and there was a small package of very 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 shitty parmesan cheese mm. and i because i was the ship's cook amongst other things i was saving this for a celebration because we hadn't had cheese for so long and every er, all the food was running down everything was running down then at the end of it when we got to anuta we were just eating the local food which was I'm sure very good if you've grown up there, but for me, I just don't like fish that are chopped in half, boiled in coconut milk with scales on. Mm-hmm. Not into that food. So I got very, very thin. <laughs> very thin. Because I just wasn't eating because we like the ship's food had all run out and it was just what was there. And yeah. On this on this cargo ship on the way back, I was cooking spaghetti bolognese. I've been saving this meal for all the crews because I was like okay we're going to have one nice European meal so I'd hoarded some cheese I'd hoarded like a can of corned beef I'd hoarded a little bit of garlic and so on <laughs> and I made this spaghetti bolognese and I got like one leg up and then like cooking in the in the in this thing which the crew had very kindly let, let us use their, their galley on this on this cargo ship and um, it was delicious to me I'm sure it would be horrible any other time but yeah it was very delicious uh, on our last uh, on our last night on the island of Anuta, they wanted to say farewell to us, which was very kind, and they wanted to do it in the traditional way. And the traditional way is every family on the island came to a big clearing on the island. So it's a very small island, so twenty families maximum, and every family would cook a meal, and we would have to go to and then and then they would all sit in a big circle around this clearing and we would have to go from family to family to family and we would have to eat a meal at every family's little picnic site for want want of a better word so that's like 20 families that you've got to eat a meal with because it's showing that you're not dangerous you will eat food with that family which is lovely 20 meals is a lot of meals. It's a <laughs> lot. Even if you only eat a tiny bit, that's a lot of food. And being yeah, an Englishman... Yeah, even the hobbits didn't do that much. You know, being yeah. an Englishman, you have to be polite and you have to do the right thing. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a challenging evening because, uh, I, mean, I mean, the English part of me was just consumed with guilt for I am not paying these people enough attention. I am not looking after them enough. I'm not eating enough of their food. And then the rational part of my mind is like, get me out of here. I can't eat any more food. Please, please, please help. <laughs> but I did it. I went to every family and had l- at least a small bite of food from every place. Well, and then to put this into perspective, so food is 
I mean, it's it's what they've had for thousands of years, and and so on and so on. But f- coming from a European background, it it to me, it's not it's not great. So the way they cook fish is they take fish, and then they leave the scales on, and they boil them in coconut milk without any salt or anything like that. So it's fish covered in scales, and they chop them in half. Fish covered in scales, boiled in coconut milk. Not great when you're picking, for me, from a European background. I'm sure if you're from the Pacific, it's great. But um, yeah, so there's that. And then there's various starchy root vegetables that grow. And it's them cooked. And then the delicacy is starchy root vegetables that have been buried underground for at least six months. So they've gone fermented and rotten. Nice. And they smell and taste exactly like silage. Like what? Silage. Silage. What you spread in the fields. Oh, manure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but this is the island's delicacy. Yeah. There might be a genetic component there because... I oh, remember, there totally is. Well, no, no. Because I, I remember going to a Chinese restaurant already stinky tofu. Yeah. And I was like, this smells and tastes like horse manure. Mm-hmm. I've never tasted horse manure. But you know how when you smell something, you know what it yeah. tastes like? Like, literally, that's what it smelled and tastes like to me. And I remember my Chinese housemate, I was telling him about it. And I'm like, man, this this really, like, I had the stinky tofu stuff. He's like, yeah. oh, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah, it tastes like fish. Yeah. I'm like, no. No, it doesn't. He's like, yes, it does. So there might actually be a genetic well, component. Well, so there. to them, this is this is the really expensive, nice food that you give to people that you really like. Dude, they sat there for six months? Yeah. Yeah. They put a like, lot of work into this. You know. Yeah. So. I get it. You've got to sit there, <laughs> smile, and eat that. Yeah, you get cheese that's stuck in yep. a cave until it's all moldy and you put it I am just out. looking on, forward to when the Newton people come around to my house and I'm giving them like really old stinky cheese. Exactly. Like some civilized. Because that's the same thing. Because that's civilized. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> From a it's, cave. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's the same thing. So it's anyway, wonderful. I was very yeah, polite. No, no, I, I get it. I get it. So we got, we got on this ship. We took the ship. Oh, dear God. If I was going to die, it would be on that ship. That ship was just <laughs> a stake. And we get to the next island, and then from that island, we have to get light aircraft to another island where we can actually get a real plane from. Now, for me, the absolute highlight of this entire adventuring trip was that light aircraft trip. Hmm. So we're on this island, there's a small airstrip, small dirt airstrip, and Twin Otter arrives, which, go research what a Twin Otter is. It's a fairly modern, light, Ladies twin engine. go engined. home, do your own research. That's Terror the prop. theme of this episode. Um and there's no door to the captain and the first officer's cabin because nine eleven hadn't reached that far yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, how big was this plane? I'm sorry. How many passengers could I carry? I don't know, ten, maybe fifteen. Okay, so it's really yeah, yeah small, it's a small, small, light, light, light aircraft. And I'm sat in the back and I have a chat with the pilots, and that for me was the absolute highlight of the trip. By a million miles. Hmm. I mean, you know, you can sail across an ocean, you can sail without navigational equipment, sail without GPS, sail by the winds, figure out where you're going by the bird arriving on the deck, you know, as you know, get greeted by the fantastic people and so on. But the highlight of the trip for me, getting on that aeroplane <laughs> and being able to see through the cockpit, see what the pilots were doing, see what they were doing and, and, you know, it was it was unpressurized, and we flew. I think it was a couple of hours to the next island, and I've got f- 
photos of it and that was just incredible that was just such an experience for me though all the rest of it you know it was great and all but whatever going on that twin otter aircraft was something else well, Jamie, we've come full circle. We started this podcast talking about how you went flying today, yep. and we've ended it with how you loved yeah. flying across the ocean. So, oh yeah, so now I fly airplanes. Blah blah blah. Yeah, I think we'll I think we'll leave it at yeah. that. I think we'll end on that note. Anyway, yeah. thank you, thank you, Jamie. Thanks for taking so much time to chat with me and sharing stories thank with you. with everybody. And uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, go out, do your own research. Don't listen to anything we say. <laughs> Take it all with a grain of salt. Especially don't listen to anything I've said. I don't know what I'm talking about. There we go. There we go. But do your own research and, and come up with your own opinions. I know nobody wants to hear that, but that's just, the, in my opinion, the best thing you can do. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, support it any way you can. Please check out your local tall ships. Check out, hey, if you know of somebody sailing across an ocean or just sailing down across the bay, maybe help them out. You never know. You might get a great story out of it. And uh, I highly recommend it. So... Do all that. Check out my kids' book if you get a chance. And that's all I've got. Jamie, Guy Fields? Uh, love each other. Be nice to each other. Forget about all this modern crap about the internet and so on. Just love each other. Be nice to each other. And give each other a hug. Yeah, it's awesome, Jamie. All right, well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You're a great shipmate, great friend. Yeah, you too. I love you, man. I, I love you too. Yeah, really So do. much. All right. On that note, fair winds and falling sea to you, Jamie. Fair winds and a falling sea to everyone else out there. Take care.